This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Carmilla by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. It's read by Elizabeth Klett of LibriVox, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The story runs three hours, seven minutes. This is a LibriVox recording. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. Read by Elizabeth Klett. Prologue. Upon a paper attached to the narrative which follows, Dr. Hesalius has written a rather elaborate note, which he accompanies with a reference to his essay on the strange subject which the manuscript illuminates. This mysterious subject he treats, in that essay, with his usual learning and acumen, and with remarkable directness and condensation. It will form but one volume of the series of that extraordinary man's collected papers. As I publish the case in this volume, simply to interest the laity, I shall forestall the intelligent lady who relates it in nothing, and after due consideration, I have determined, therefore, to abstain from presenting any precy of the learned doctor's reasoning, or extract from his statement on a subject which he describes as involving, not improbably, some of the profoundest arcana of our dual existence and its intermediates. I was anxious on discovering this paper to reopen the correspondence commenced by Dr. Hesalius so many years before, with a person so clever and careful as his informant seems to have been. Much to my regret, however, I found that she had died in the interval. She probably could have added little to the narrative which she communicates in the following pages, with, so far as I can pronounce, such conscientious particularity. CHAPTER One, AN EARLY FRIGHT In Styria, we, though by no means magnificent people, inhabit a castle, or schloss. A small income in that part of the world goes a great way. Eight or nine hundred a year does wonders. Scantily enough ours would have answered among wealthy people at home. My father is English, and I bear an English name, although I never saw England. But here, in this lonely and primitive place, where everything is so marvelously cheap, I really don't see how ever so much more money would be at all materially adding to our comforts, or even luxuries. My father was in the Austrian service, and retired upon a pension and his patrimony, and purchased this feudal residence and the small estate on which it stands, a bargain. Nothing can be more picturesque or solitary. It stands on a slight eminence in a forest. The road, very old and narrow, passes in front of its drawbridge, never raised in my time, and its moat, stocked with perch, and sailed over by many swans, and floating on its surface white fleets of water-lilies. Over all this the schloss shows its many-windowed front, its towers, and its Gothic chapel. 
The forest opens in an irregular and very picturesque glade before its gate, and at the right a steep Gothic bridge carries the road over a stream that winds in deep shadow through the wood. I have said that this is a very lonely place. Judge whether I say truth. Looking from the hall door towards the road, the forest in which our castle stands extends fifteen miles to the right and twelve to the left. The nearest inhabited village is about seven of your English miles to the left. The nearest inhabited schloss of any historic associations is that of old General Spielsdorf, nearly twenty miles away to the right. I have said the nearest inhabited village because there is only three miles westward, that is to say, in the direction of General Spielsdorf Schloss, a ruined village. With its quaint little church, now roofless, in the aisle of which are the mouldering tombs of the proud family of Karnstein, now extinct, who once owned the equally desolate chateau, which, in the thick of the forest, overlooks the silent ruins of the town. Respecting the cause of the desertion of this striking and melancholy spot, There is a legend which I shall relate to you another time. I must tell you now how very small is the party who constitute the inhabitants of our castle. I don't include servants, or those dependents who occupy rooms in the buildings attached to the schloss. Listen and wonder. My father, who was the kindest man on earth, but growing old. And I. At the date of my story, only nineteen. Eight years have passed since then. I and my father constituted the family at the Schloss. My mother, a Styrian lady, died in my infancy, but I had a good natured governess who had been with me from, I might almost say, my infancy. I could not remember the time when her fat, benignant face was not a familiar picture in my memory. This was Madame Perrodon, a native of Berne, whose care and good nature now in part supplied to me the loss of my mother, whom I do not even remember, so early I lost her. She made a third at our little dinner party. There was a fourth, Mademoiselle de La Fontaine, a lady such as you term, I believe, a finishing governess. She spoke French and German, Madame Perrodon French and broken English, To which my father and I added English, which, partly to prevent its becoming a lost language among us, and partly from patriotic motives, we spoke every day. The consequence was a babble, at which strangers used to laugh, and which I shall make no attempt to reproduce in this narrative. And there were two or three young lady friends besides, pretty nearly of mine own age, who were occasional visitors for longer or shorter terms, and these visits I sometimes returned. These were our regular social resources, but of course there were chance visits from neighbors of only five or six leagues distance. My life was, notwithstanding, rather a solitary one, I can assure you. My gouvernante had just so much control over me as you might conjecture such sage persons would have in the case of a rather spoiled girl, whose only parent allowed her pretty nearly her own way in everything.
The first occurrence in my existence, which produced a terrible impression upon my mind, which, in fact, never has been effaced, was one of the very earliest incidents of my life which I can recollect. Some people will think it so trifling that it should not be recorded here. You will see, however, by and by, why I mention it. The nursery, as it was called, though I had it all to myself, was a large room in the upper story of the castle with a steep oak roof. I can't have been more than six years old, when one night I awoke, and looking round the room from my bed, failed to see the nursery maid. Neither was my nurse there, and I thought myself alone. I was not frightened, for I was one of those happy children who are studiously kept in ignorance of ghost stories, of fairy tales, and of all such lore as makes us cover up our heads when the door cracks suddenly, or the flicker of an expiring candle makes the shadow of a bedpost dance upon the wall nearer to our faces. I was vexed and insulted at finding myself, as I conceived, neglected, and I began to whimper, preparatory to a hearty bout of roaring, when, to my surprise, I saw a solemn but very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady, who was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder, and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands, and lay down beside me on the bed, and drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately delightfully soothed and fell asleep again. I was wakened by a sensation, as if two needles ran into my breast very deep at the same moment, and I cried loudly. The lady started back, with her eyes fixed on me, and then slipped down upon the floor, and, as I thought, hid herself under the bed. I was now for the first time frightened, and I yelled with all my might and main. Nurse, nursery-maid, housekeeper, all came running in, and hearing my story they made light of it, soothing me all they could meanwhile. But, child as I was, I could perceive that their faces were pale with an unwanted look of anxiety, and I saw them look under the bed and about the room, and peep under tables and pluck open cupboards, and the housekeeper whispered to the nurse, "'Lay your hand along that hollow in the bed. "'Someone did lie there, so sure as you did not. "'The place is still warm.' "'I remember the nursery-maid petting me, "'and all three examining my chest, "'where I told them I felt the puncture, "'and pronouncing that there was no sign visible "'that any such thing had happened to me.' The housekeeper and the two other servants who were in charge of the nursery remained sitting up all night, and from that time a servant always sat up in the nursery until I was about fourteen. I was very nervous for a long time after this. A doctor was called in. He was pallid and elderly. How well I remember his long, saturnine face, slightly pitted with smallpox, and his chestnut wig. For a good while, every second day, he came and gave me medicine, which of course I hated. The morning after I saw this apparition I was in a state of terror, and could not bear to be left alone, daylight though it was, for a moment. 
I remember my father coming up and standing at the bedside, and talking cheerfully, and asking the nurse a number of questions, and laughing very heartily at one of the answers, and patting me on the shoulder and kissing me, and telling me not to be frightened, that it was nothing but a dream and could not hurt me. But I was not comforted, for I knew the visit of the strange woman was not a dream, and I was awfully frightened. I was a little consoled by the nursery maids assuring me that it was she who had come and looked at me, and lain down beside me in the bed, and that I must have been half dreaming not to have known her face. But this, though supported by the nurse, did not quite satisfy me. I remembered in the course of that day a venerable old man in a black cassock coming into the room with the nurse and housekeeper and talking a little to them and very kindly to me. His face was very sweet and gentle, and he told me they were going to pray and joined my hands together and desired me to say softly while they were praying, Lord, hear all good prayers for us, for Jesus' sake. I think those were the very words, for I often repeated them to myself, and my nurse used for years to make me say them in my prayers. I remembered so well the thoughtful, sweet face of that white-haired old man in his black cassock, as he stood in that rude, lofty, brown room with the clumsy furniture of a fashion three hundred years old about him, and the scanty light entering its shadowy atmosphere through the small lattice. He kneeled, and the three women with him, and he prayed aloud with an earnest, quavering voice for what appeared to me a long time. I forget all my life preceding that event, and for some time after it is all obscure also, but the scenes I have just described stand out, vivid as the isolated pictures of the phantasmagoria surrounded by darkness. CHAPTER Two, A GUEST I am now going to tell you something so strange that it will require all your faith in my veracity to believe my story. It is not only true, nevertheless, but truth of which I have been an eye-witness. It was a sweet summer evening, and my father asked me, as he sometimes did, to take a little ramble with him along that beautiful forest vista which I have mentioned as lying in front of the Schloss. "'General Spielsdorf cannot come to us so soon as I had hoped,' said my father, as we pursued our walk. He was to have paid us a visit of some weeks, and we had expected his arrival next day. He was to have brought with him a young lady, his niece and ward, Mademoiselle Reinfeldt, whom I had never seen, but whom I had heard described as a very charming girl, and in whose society I had promised myself many happy days. I was more disappointed than a young lady living in a town or a bustling neighborhood can possibly imagine. This visit, and the new acquaintance it promised, had furnished my daydream for many weeks. "'And how soon does he come?' I asked. "'Not till autumn.' "'Not for two months, I dare say,' he answered. "'And I am very glad now, dear, that you never knew Mademoiselle Reinfeldt. "'And why?' I asked, both mortified and curious. "'Because the poor young lady is dead,' he replied. "'I quite forgot I had not told you 
but you were not in the room when I received the general's letter this evening. I was very much shocked. General Spielsdorf had mentioned in his first letter, six or seven weeks before, that she was not so well as he would wish her, but there was nothing to suggest the remotest suspicion of danger. Here is the general's letter, he said, handing it to me. I am afraid he is in great affliction. The letter appears to me to have been written very nearly in distraction. We sat down on a rude bench, under a group of magnificent lime trees. The sun was setting with all its melancholy splendor behind the sylvan horizon, and the stream that flows beside our home, and passes under the steep old bridge I have mentioned, wound through many a group of noble trees, almost at our feet, reflecting in its current the fading crimson of the sky. General Spielsdorf's letter was so extraordinary, so vehement, and in some places so self-contradictory, that I read it twice over, the second time aloud to my father, and was still unable to account for it, except by supposing that grief had unsettled his mind. It said, I have lost my darling daughter, for as such I loved her. During the last days of dear Bertha's illness I was not able to write to you. Before then I had no idea of her danger. I have lost her, and now learn all too late. She died in the peace of innocence, and in the glorious hope of a blessed futurity. The fiend who betrayed our infatuated hospitality has done it all. I thought I was receiving into my house innocence, gaiety, a charming companion for my lost Bertha. Heavens! What a fool have I been! I thank God my child died without a suspicion of the cause of her sufferings. She is gone without so much as conjecturing the nature of her illness and the accursed passion of the agent of all this misery. I devote my remaining days to tracking and extinguishing a monster. I am told I may hope to accomplish my righteous and merciful purpose. At present there is scarcely a gleam of light to guide me. I curse my conceited incredulity, my despicable affectation of superiority, my blindness, my obstinacy, all too late. I cannot write or talk collectedly now. I am distracted. So soon as I shall have a little recovered, I mean to devote myself for a time to enquiry, which may possibly lead me as far as Vienna. Sometime in the autumn, two months hence, or earlier if I live, I will see you. That is, if you permit me. I will then tell you all that I scarce dare put upon paper now. Farewell. Pray for me, dear friend. In these terms ended this strange letter. Though I had never seen Bertha Reinfeldt, my eyes filled with tears at the sudden intelligence. I was startled, as well as profoundly disappointed. The sun had now set, and it was twilight by the time I had returned the general's letter to my father. It was a soft, clear evening, and we loitered, speculating upon the possible meanings of the violent and incoherent sentences which I had just been reading. 
We had nearly a mile to walk before reaching the road that passes the Schloss in front, and by that time the moon was shining brilliantly. At the drawbridge we met Madame Perrodon and Mademoiselle de La Fontaine, who had come out without their bonnets to enjoy the exquisite moonlight. We heard their voices gabbling in animated dialogue as we approached. We joined them at the drawbridge and turned about to admire with them the beautiful scene. The glade through which we had just walked lay before us. At our left, the narrow road wound away under clumps of lordly trees and was lost to sight amid the thickening forest. At the right, the same road crosses the steep and picturesque bridge, near which stands a ruined tower which once guarded that pass, and beyond the bridge, an abrupt eminence rises covered with trees and showing in the shadows some gray, ivy clustered rocks. Over the sward and low grounds, a thin film of mist was stealing like smoke, marking the distances with a transparent veil. And here and there we could see the river faintly flashing in the moonlight. No softer, sweeter scene could be imagined. The news I had just heard made it melancholy, but nothing could disturb its character of profound serenity and the enchanted glory and vagueness of the prospect. My father, who enjoyed the picturesque, and I stood looking in silence over the expanse beneath us. The two good governesses, standing a little way behind us, discoursed upon the scene and were eloquent upon the moon. Madame Perrodon was fat, middle aged, and romantic, and talked and sighed poetically. Mademoiselle de La Fontaine, in right of her father, who was a German, assumed to be psychological, metaphysical, and something of a mystic, Now declared that when the moon shone with a light so intense, it was well known that it indicated a special spiritual activity. The effect of the full moon in such a state of brilliancy was manifold. It acted on dreams. It acted on lunacy. It acted on nervous people. It had marvelous physical influences connected with life. Mademoiselle related that her cousin, who was mate of a merchant ship, Having taken a nap on deck on such a night, lying on his back, with his face full in the light of the moon, had wakened, after a dream of an old woman clawing him by the cheek, with his features horribly drawn to one side, and his countenance had never quite recovered his equilibrium. The moon this night, she said, is full of idyllic and magnetic influence. And see, when you look behind you at the front of the Schloss, how all its windows flash and twinkle with that silvery splendor, as if unseen hands had lighted up the rooms to receive fairy guests. There are indolent styles of the spirits, in which, indisposed to talk ourselves, the talk of others is pleasant to our listless ears, and I gazed on, pleased with the tinkle of the ladies' conversation. I have got into one of my moping moods tonight, said my father, after a silence, and quoting Shakespeare, whom, by way of keeping up our English, he used to read aloud, he said, In truth, I know not why I am so sad. It wearies me. You say it wearies you. But how I got it, came by it. I forget the rest. But I feel as if some great misfortune were hanging over us. 
I suppose the poor general's afflicted letter has had something to do with it. At this moment, the unwanted sound of carriage wheels and many hoofs upon the road arrested our attention. They seemed to be approaching from the high ground overlooking the bridge, and very soon the equipage emerged from that point. Two horsemen first crossed the bridge, then came a carriage drawn by four horses, and two men rode behind. It seemed to be the traveling carriage of a person of rank, and we were all immediately absorbed in watching that very unusual spectacle. It became, in a few moments, greatly more interesting, for just as the carriage had passed the summit of the steep bridge, one of the leaders, taking fright, communicated his panic to the rest, and after a plunge or two the whole team broke into a wild gallop together, and dashing between the horsemen who rode in front, came thundering along the road towards us with the speed of a hurricane. The excitement of the scene was made more painful by the clear, long-drawn screams of a female voice from the carriage window. We all advanced in curiosity and horror, me rather in silence, the rest with various ejaculations of terror. Our suspense did not last long. Just before you reach the castle drawbridge, on the route they were coming, there stands by the roadside a magnificent lime-tree, on the other stands an ancient stone cross, at sight of which the horses, now going at a pace that was perfectly frightful, swerved so as to bring the wheel over the projecting roots of the tree. I knew what was coming. I covered my eyes, unable to see it out, and turned my head away. At the same moment I heard a cry from my lady friends who had gone on a little. Curiosity opened my eyes and I saw a scene of utter confusion. Two of the horses were on the ground, the carriage lay upon its side with two wheels in the air, the men were busy removing the traces, and a lady with a commanding air and figure had gotten out, and stood with clasped hands, raising the handkerchief that was in them every now and then to her eyes. Through the carriage door was now lifted a young lady, who appeared to be lifeless. My dear old father was already beside the elder lady, with his hat in his hand, evidently tendering his aid and the resources of his schloss. The lady did not appear to hear him, or to have eyes for anything but the slender girl who was being placed against the slope of the bank. I approached. The young lady was apparently stunned, but she was certainly not dead. My father, who piqued himself on being something of a physician, had just had his fingers on her wrist, and assured the lady, who declared herself her mother, that her pulse, though faint and irregular, was undoubtedly still distinguishable. The lady clasped her hands and looked upward, as if in a momentary transport of gratitude, but immediately she broke out again in that theatrical way which is, I believe, natural to some people." She was what is called a fine-looking woman for her time of life, and must have been handsome. She was tall, but not thin, and dressed in black velvet, and looked rather pale, but with a proud and commanding countenance, though now agitated strangely. "'Who was ever being so born to calamity?' I heard her say with clasped hands as I came up. "'Here am I, on a journey of life and death.' in prosecuting which to lose an hour is possibly to lose all. 
My child will not have recovered sufficiently to resume her route for who can say how long. I must leave her. I cannot, dare not delay. How far on, sir, can you tell as the nearest village? I must leave her there, and shall not see my darling or even hear of her till my return three months hence. I plucked my father by the coat and whispered earnestly in his ear, Oh, Papa! Pray ask her to let her stay with us. It would be so delightful. Do pray. If Madame will entrust her child to the care of my daughter, and of her good gouvernante, Madame Perrodon, and permit her to remain as our guest under my charge until her return, it will confer a distinction and an obligation upon us, and we shall treat her with all the care and devotion which so sacred a trust deserves. I cannot do that, sir. It would be to task your kindness and chivalry too cruelly, said the lady distractedly. It would, on the contrary, be to confer on us a very great kindness at the moment when we most need it. My daughter has just been disappointed by a cruel misfortune, in a visit from which she had long anticipated a great deal of happiness. If you confide this young lady to our care, It will be her best consolation. The nearest village on your route is distant, and affords no such inn as you could think of placing your daughter at. You cannot allow her to continue her journey for any considerable distance without danger. If, as you say, you cannot suspend your journey, you must part with her tonight, and nowhere could you do so with more honest assurances of care and tenderness than here. There was something in this lady's air and appearance so distinguished, and even imposing, and in her manner so engaging, as to impress one, quite apart from the dignity of her equipage, with a conviction that she was a person of consequence. By this time the carriage was replaced in its upright position, and the horses, quite tractable, in the traces again. The lady threw on her daughter a glance which I fancied was not quite so affectionate as one might have anticipated from the beginning of the scene. And then she beckoned slightly to my father, and withdrew two or three steps with him out of hearing, and talked to him with a fixed and stern countenance, not at all like that with which she had hitherto spoken. I was filled with wonder that my father did not seem to perceive the change. And also unspeakably curious to learn what it could be that she was speaking almost in his ear with so much earnestness and rapidity. Two or three minutes at most, I think, she remained thus employed. Then she turned, and a few steps brought her to where her daughter lay, supported by Madame Perrodon. She kneeled beside her for a moment and whispered, as Madame supposed, a little benediction in her ear. Then, hastily kissing her, she stepped into her carriage, the door was closed, the footmen in stately liveries jumped up behind, the outriders spurred on, the postillons cracked their whips, the horses plunged and broke suddenly into a furious canter that threatened soon again to become a gallop, and the carriage whirled away, followed at the same rapid pace by the two horsemen in the rear. Chapter 3 We Compare Notes We followed the cortege with our eyes until it was swiftly lost to sight in the misty wood, and the very sound of the hoofs and the wheels died away in the silent night air. Nothing remained to assure us that the adventure had not been an illusion of a moment but the young lady, 
who just at that moment opened her eyes. I could not see, for her face was turned from me. But she raised her head, evidently looking about her, and I heard a very sweet voice ask complainingly, Where is Mamma? Our good Madame Perrodon answered tenderly, and added some comfortable assurances. I then heard her ask, Where am I? What is this place? And after that she said, I don't see the carriage. And Matska, where is she? Madame answered all her questions in so far as she understood them, and gradually the young lady remembered how the misadventure came about, and was glad to hear that no one in or in attendance on the carriage was hurt, and on learning that her mamma had left her here till her return in about three months, she wept. I was going to add my consolations to those of Madame Perrodon when Mademoiselle de La Fontaine placed her hand upon my arm, saying, Don't approach. One at a time is as much as she can at present converse with. A very little excitement would possibly overpower her now. As soon as she is comfortably in bed, I thought, I will run up to her room and see her. My father, in the meantime, had sent a servant on horseback for the physician, who lived about two leagues away, and a bedroom was being prepared for the young lady's reception. The stranger now rose, and leaning on Madame's arm, walked slowly over the drawbridge and into the castle gate. In the hall, servants waited to receive her, and she was conducted forthwith to her room. The room we usually sat in, as our drawing room is long, having four windows, that looked over the moat and the drawbridge, upon the forest scene I have just described. It is furnished in old carved oak, with large carved cabinets, and the chairs are cushioned with crimson Utrecht velvet. The walls are covered with tapestry, and surrounded with great gold frames, the figures being as large as life, in ancient and very curious costume, and the subjects represented are hunting, hawking, and generally festive. It is not too stately to be extremely comfortable, and here we had our tea, for with his usual patriotic leanings he insisted that the national beverage should make its appearance regularly with our coffee and chocolate. We sat here this night, and with candles lighted, were talking over the adventure of the evening. Madame Perrodon and Mademoiselle de La Fontaine were both part of our party. The young stranger had hardly lain down in her bed when she sank into a deep sleep, and those ladies had left her in the care of a servant. How do you like our guest? I asked, as soon as Madame entered. Tell me all about her. I like her extremely, answered Madame. She is, I almost think, the prettiest creature I ever saw, about your age, and so gentle and nice. She is absolutely beautiful, threw in Mademoiselle, who had peeped for a moment into the stranger's room. And such a sweet voice, added Madame Perrodon. Did you remark a woman in the carriage after it was set up again who did not get out? inquired Mademoiselle, but only looked from the window. No, we had not seen her. Then she described a hideous black woman, with a sort of colored turban on her head, and who was gazing all the time from the carriage window, nodding and grinning derisively toward the ladies, with gleaming eyes and large white eyeballs, and her teeth set as if in fury. Did you remark what an ill-looking pack of men the servants were? asked Madame. Yes, said my father, who had just come in. 
ugly, hang-dog-looking fellows as ever I beheld in my life. I hope they mayn't rob the poor lady in the forest. They are clever rogues, however. They got everything to rights in a minute. I dare say they are worn out with too long travelling, said Madame. Besides looking wicked, their faces were so strangely lean and dark and sullen. I am very curious, I own, but I dare say the young lady will tell you all about it tomorrow if she is sufficiently recovered. I don't think she will, said my father, with a mysterious smile, and a little nod of his head as if he knew more about it than he cared to tell us. This made us all the more inquisitive as to what had passed between him and the lady in black velvet, in the brief but earnest interview that had immediately preceded her departure. We were scarcely alone when I entreated him to tell me. He did not need much pressing. There is no particular reason why I should not tell you. She expressed a reluctance to trouble us with the care of her daughter, saying she was in delicate health and nervous, but not subject to any kind of seizure. She volunteered that, nor to any illusion, being, in fact, perfectly sane. How very odd to say all that, I interpolated. It was so unnecessary. At all events, it was said, he laughed, and as you wish to know all that passed, which was very little indeed, I tell you. She then said, I am making a long journey of vital importance. She emphasized the word. Rapid and secret. I shall return for my child in three months. In the meantime, she will be silent as to who we are, whence we come, and whither we are traveling. That is all she said. She spoke very pure French. When she said the word secret, she paused for a few seconds, looking sternly, her eyes fixed on mine. I fancy she makes a great point of that. You saw how quickly she was gone. I hope I have not done a very foolish thing in taking charge of the young lady. For my part, I was delighted. I was longing to see and talk to her, and only waiting till the doctor should give me leave. You who live in towns can have no idea how great an event the introduction of a new friend is in such a solitude as surrounded us. The doctor did not arrive till nearly one o'clock, but I could no more have gone to my bed and slept than I could have overtaken on foot the carriage in which the princess in black velvet had driven away. When the physician came down to the drawing room, it was to report very favorably upon his patient. She was now sitting up, her pulse quite regular, apparently perfectly well. She had sustained no injury, and the little shock to her nerves had passed away quite harmlessly. There could be no harm, certainly, in my seeing her if we both wished it, and with this permission I sent forthwith to know whether she would allow me to visit her for a few minutes in her room. The servant returned immediately to say that she desired nothing more. You may be sure I was not long in availing myself of this permission. Our visitor lay in one of the handsomest rooms in the Schloss. It was perhaps a little stately. There was a sombre piece of tapestry opposite the bed, representing Cleopatra with the asps to her bosom, and other solemn classic scenes were displayed, a little faded, upon the other walls. But there was gold carving, and rich and varied color enough in the other decorations of the room to more than redeem the gloom of the old tapestry. 
There were candles at the bedside. She was sitting up, her slender, pretty figure enveloped in the soft silk dressing gown, embroidered with flowers and lined with thick quilted silk, which her mother had thrown over her feet as she lay on the ground. What was it that, as I reached the bedside and had just begun my little greeting, struck me dumb in a moment and made me recoil a step or two from before her? I will tell you. I saw the very face which had visited me in my childhood at night, and which remained so fixed in my memory, and on which I had for so many years so often ruminated with horror when no one suspected of what I was thinking. It was pretty, even beautiful, and when I first beheld it, wore the same melancholy expression. But this almost instantly lighted into a strange fixed smile of recognition. There was a silence of fully a minute, and then at length she spoke. I could not. How wonderful! she exclaimed. Twelve years ago I saw your face in a dream, and it has haunted me ever since. Wonderful indeed! I repeated. "'overcoming with an effort the horror "'that had for a time suspended my utterances. Twelve years ago, in vision or reality, "'I certainly saw you. "'I could not forget your face. "'It has remained before my eyes ever since.' "'Her smile had softened. "'Whatever I had fancied strange in it was gone, "'and it and her dimpling cheeks "'were now delightfully pretty and intelligent. "'I felt reassured,' and continued more in the vein which hospitality indicated to bid her welcome, and to tell her how much pleasure her accidental arrival had given us all, and especially what a happiness it was to me. I took her hand as I spoke. I was a little shy, as lonely people are, but the situation made me eloquent, and even bold. She pressed my hand, she laid hers upon it, and her eyes glowed, as looking hastily into mine she smiled again and blushed. She answered my welcome very prettily. I sat down beside her, still wondering, and she said, I must tell you my vision about you. It is so very strange that you and I should have had each of the other so vivid a dream, that each should have seen I you and you me, looking as we do now, when of course we were both mere children. I was a child, about six years old, and I awoke from a confused and troubled dream, and found myself in a room unlike my nursery, wainscoted clumsily in some dark wood, and with cupboards and bedsteads and chairs and benches placed about it. The beds were, I thought, all empty, and the room itself without anyone but myself in it, and I, after looking about me for some time, and admiring especially an iron candlestick with two branches, which I should certainly know again, crept under one of the beds to reach the window. But as I got from under the bed, I heard someone crying. And looking up, while I was still upon my knees, I saw you, most assuredly you, as I see you now, a beautiful young lady, with golden hair and large blue eyes, and lips, your lips, you as you are here. Your looks won me, 
I climbed on the bed and put my arms about you, and I think we both fell asleep. I was aroused by a scream. You were sitting up, screaming. I was frightened, and slipped down upon the ground, and it seemed to me lost consciousness for a moment, and when I came to myself I was again in my nursery at home. Your face I have never forgotten since. I could not be misled by the mere resemblance. You are the lady whom I saw then. It was now my turn to relate my corresponding vision, which I did to the undisguised wonder of my new acquaintance. I don't know which should be most afraid of the other, she said again, smiling. If you were less pretty, I think I should be very much afraid of you. But being as you are, and you and I both so young, I feel only that I have made your acquaintance twelve years ago, and have already a right to your intimacy. At all events, it does seem as if we were destined from our earliest childhood to be friends. I wonder whether you feel as strangely drawn towards me as I do to you. I have never had a friend. Shall I find one now? She sighed, and her fine dark eyes gazed passionately on me. Now the truth is, I felt rather unaccountably towards the beautiful stranger. I did feel, as she said, drawn towards her. But there was also something of repulsion. In this ambiguous feeling, however, the sense of attraction immensely prevailed. She interested and won me. She was so beautiful and so indescribably engaging. I perceived now something of languor and exhaustion stealing over her, and hastened to bid her good night. The doctor thinks, I added, that you ought to have a maid sit up with you tonight. One of ours is waiting, and you will find her a very useful and quiet creature. How kind of you! But I could not sleep. I never could with an attendant in the room. I shan't require any assistance. And shall I confess my weakness? I am haunted with a terror of robbers. Our house was robbed once and two servants murdered, so I always lock my door. It has become a habit. And you look so kind, I know you will forgive me. I see there is a key in the lock. She held me close in her pretty arms for a moment and whispered in my ear, Good night, darling. It is very hard to part with you, but good night. Tomorrow, but not early, I shall see you again. She sank back on the pillow with a sigh, and her fine eyes followed me with a fond and melancholy gaze, and she murmured again, Good night, dear friend. Young people like, and even love, on impulse. I was flattered by the evident, though as yet undeserved, fondness she showed me. I liked the confidence with which she at once received me. She was determined that we should be very near friends. Next day came, and we met again. I was delighted with my companion, that is to say, in many respects. Her looks lost nothing in daylight. She was most certainly the most beautiful creature I had ever seen, and the unpleasant remembrance of the face presented in my early dream had lost the effect of the first unexpected recognition. 
she confessed that she had experienced a similar shock on seeing me, and precisely the same faint antipathy that had mingled with my admiration of her. We now laughed together over our momentary horrors. Chapter 4 Her Habits A Saunter I told you that I was charmed with her in most particulars. There were some that did not please me so well. She was above the middle height of women. I shall begin by describing her. She was slender and wonderfully graceful, except that her movements were languid, very languid. Indeed, there was nothing in her appearance to indicate an invalid. Her complexion was rich and brilliant. Her features were small and beautifully formed. Her eyes large, dark, and lustrous. Her hair was quite wonderful. I never saw hair so magnificently thick and long when it was down about her shoulders. I have often placed my hands under it and laughed with wonder at its weight. It was exquisitely fine and soft, and in color a rich, very dark brown, with something of gold. I loved to let it down, tumbling with its own weight, as in her room she lay back in her chair talking in her sweet low voice. I used to fold and braid it, and spread it out and play with it. Heavens! If I had but known all! I said there were particulars which did not please me. I have told you that her confidence won me the first night I saw her, but I found that she exercised with respect to herself, her mother, her history, everything, in fact, connected with her life, plans, and people, an ever-wakeful reserve. I dare say I was unreasonable. Perhaps I was wrong. I dare say I ought to have respected the solemn injunction laid upon my father by the stately lady in black velvet. But curiosity is a restless and unscrupulous passion, and no one girl can endure with patience that hers should be baffled by another. What harm could it do anyone to tell me what I so ardently desired to know? Had she no trust in my good sense or honor? Why would she not believe me when I assured her so solemnly that I would not divulge one syllable of what she told me to any mortal breathing? There was a coldness, it seemed to me, beyond her years, in her smiling, melancholy, persistent refusal to afford me the least ray of light. I cannot say we quarreled upon this point, for she would not quarrel upon any. It was, of course, very unfair of me to press her, very ill-bred, but really I could not help it, and I might just as well have let it alone. What she did tell me amounted, in my unconscionable estimation, to nothing. It was all summed up in three very vague disclosures. First, her name was Carmilla. Second, her family was very ancient and noble. Third, her home lay in the direction of the West. She would not tell me the name of her family, nor their armorial bearings, nor the name of their estate, nor even that of the country they lived in. You are not to suppose that I worried her incessantly on these subjects. I watched opportunity, and rather insinuated than urged my inquiries. Once or twice, indeed, I did attack her more directly. But no matter what my tactics, utter failure was invariably the result. Reproaches and caresses were all lost upon her. But I must add this— 
that her evasion was conducted with so pretty a melancholy and deprecation, with so many and even passionate declarations of her liking for me, and trust in my honor, and with so many promises that I should at last know all, that I could not find it in my heart long to be offended with her. She used to place her pretty arms around my neck, draw me to her, and laying her cheek to mine, murmur with her lips near my ear, Dearest, your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel, because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds with yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die. Die, sweetly die, into mine. I cannot help it. As I draw near to you, you, in your turn, will draw near to others, and learn the rapture of that cruelty which yet is love. So for a while seek to know no more of me and mine, but trust me with all your loving spirit. And when she had spoken such a rhapsody, she would press me more closely in her trembling embrace, and her lips and soft kisses gently glow upon my cheek. Her agitations and her language were unintelligible to me. From these foolish embraces, which were not of very frequent occurrence, I must allow I used to wish to extricate myself, but my energies seemed to fail me. Her murmured words sounded like a lullaby in my ear, and soothed my resistance into a trance, from which I only seemed to recover myself when she withdrew her arms. In these mysterious moods I did not like her. I experienced a strange, tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable, ever and anon, mingled with a vague sense of fear and distrust. I had no distinct thoughts about her while such scenes lasted, but I was conscious of a love growing into adoration, and also of abhorrence. This, I know, is paradox, but I can make no other attempt to explain the feeling. I now write, after an interval of more than ten years, with a trembling hand, with a confused and horrible recollection of certain occurrences and situations, in the ordeal through which I was unconsciously passing, though with a very vivid and sharp remembrance of the main current of my story. But, I suspect, in all lives there are certain emotional scenes, those in which our passions have been most wildly and terribly roused, that are of all others the most vaguely and dimly remembered. Sometimes, after an hour of apathy, my strange and beautiful companion would take my hand and hold it with a fond pressure, renewed again and again. Blushing softly, gazing in my face with languid and burning eyes, and breathing so fast that her dress rose and fell with the tumultuous respiration. It was like the ardor of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful, and yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes she drew me to her, and her hot lips traveled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, "'You are mine. You shall be mine. You and I are one for ever.' Then she had thrown herself back in her chair, with her small hands over her eyes, leaving me trembling. 
Are we related? I used to ask. What can you mean by all this? I remind you, perhaps, of someone whom you love. But you must not. I hate it. I don't know you. I don't know myself when you look so and talk so. She used to sigh at my vehemence, then turn away and drop my hand. Respecting these very extraordinary manifestations, I strove in vain to form any satisfactory theory. I could not refer them to affectation or trick. It was unmistakably the momentary breaking out of suppressed instinct and emotion. Was she, notwithstanding her mother's volunteered denial, subject to brief visitations of insanity? Or was there here a disguise and a romance? I had read in old story books of such things. What if a boyish lover had found his way into the house and sought to prosecute his suit in masquerade with the assistance of a clever old adventuress? But there were many things against this hypothesis, highly interesting as it was to my vanity. I could boast of no little attentions, such as masculine gallantry delights to offer. Between these passionate moments, there were long intervals of commonplace, of gaiety, of brooding melancholy. During which, except that I detected her eyes so full of melancholy fire, following me, at times I might have been as nothing to her. Except in these brief periods of mysterious excitement, her ways were girlish, and there was always a languor about her, quite incompatible with the masculine system in a state of health. In some respects, her habits were odd, perhaps not so singular in the opinion of a town lady like you, as they appeared to us rustic people. She used to come down very late, generally not till one o'clock. She would then take a cup of chocolate, but eat nothing. We then went out for a walk, which was a mere saunter, and she seemed almost immediately exhausted, and either returned to the schloss or sat on one of the benches that were placed here and there among the trees. This was a bodily languor in which her mind did not sympathize. She was always an animated talker, and very intelligent. She sometimes alluded for a moment to her own home, or mentioned an adventure or situation, or an early recollection which indicated a people of strange manners, and described customs of which we knew nothing. I gathered from these chance hints that her native country was much more remote than I had at first fancied. As we sat thus one afternoon under the trees, a funeral passed us by. It was that of a pretty young girl, whom I had often seen. The daughter of one of the rangers of the forest. The poor man was walking behind the coffin of his darling. She was his only child, and he looked quite heartbroken. Peasants walking two and two came behind. They were singing a funeral hymn. I rose to mark my respect as they passed, and joined in the hymn they were very sweetly singing. My companion shook me a little roughly, and I turned surprised. She said brusquely, Don't you perceive how discordant that is? I think it very sweet, on the contrary, I answered, vexed at the interruption, and very uncomfortable lest the people who composed the little procession should observe and resent what was passing. I resumed, therefore, instantly, and was again interrupted. You pierce my ears, said Carmilla, almost angrily, and stopping her ears with her tiny fingers. Besides, how can you tell that your religion and mine are the same? Your forms wound me, and I hate funerals. What a fuss! 
Why, you must die. Everyone must die. And all are happier when they do. Come home. My father has gone on with the clergyman to the churchyard. I thought you knew she was to be buried today. She? I don't trouble my head about peasants. I don't know who she is, answered Carmilla, with a flash from her fine eyes. She is the poor girl who fancied she saw a ghost a fortnight ago, and has been dying ever since, till yesterday when she expired. Tell me nothing about ghosts. I shan't sleep tonight if you do. I hope there is no plague or fever coming. All this looks very like it, I continued. The swineherd's young wife died only a week ago, and she thought something seized her by the throat as she lay in her bed and nearly strangled her. Papa says some horrible fancies do accompany some forms of fever. She was quite well the day before. She sank afterwards and died before a week. Well, her funeral is over, I hope, and her hymn sung, and our ears shan't be tortured with that discord and jargon. Oh, it has made me nervous. Sit down here, beside me. Sit close. Hold my hand. Press it hard. Hard. Harder. We had moved a little back and had come to another seat. She sat down. Her face underwent a change that alarmed and even terrified me for a moment. It darkened and became horribly livid. Her teeth and hands were clenched, and she frowned and compressed her lips while she stared down upon the ground at her feet and trembled all over with a continued shudder as irrepressible as ague. All her energy seemed strained to suppress a fit, with which she was then breathlessly tugging. And at length a low, convulsive cry of suffering broke from her. And gradually the hysteria subsided. There, that comes of strangling people with hymns, she said at last. Hold me, hold me still. It is passing away. And so gradually it did. And perhaps to dissipate the somber impression which the spectacle had left upon me, she became unusually animated and chatty, and so we got home. This was the first time I had seen her exhibit any definable symptoms of that delicacy of health which her mother had spoken of. It was the first time also I had seen her exhibit anything like temper. Both passed away like a summer cloud, and never but once afterwards did I witness on her part a momentary sign of anger. I will tell you how it happened. She and I were looking out of one of the long drawing room windows when there entered the courtyard over the drawbridge. The figure of a wanderer whom I knew very well. He used to visit the Schloss generally twice a year. It was the figure of a hunchback, with the sharp, lean features that generally accompany deformity. He wore a pointed black beard, and he was smiling from ear to ear, showing his white fangs. He was dressed in buff, black, and scarlet, and crossed with more straps and belts than I could count, from which hung all manner of things. Behind he carried a magic lantern, and two boxes which I well knew, in one of which was a salamander, and the other a mandrake. These monsters used to make my father laugh. They were compounded of parts of monkeys, parrots, squirrels, fish, and hedgehogs, dried and stitched together with great neatness and startling effect. He had a fiddle, a box of conjuring apparatus, a pair of foils and masks attached to his belt. 
several other mysterious cases dangling about him, and a black staff with copper ferules in his hand. His companion was a rough, spare dog that followed at his heels, but stopped short, suspiciously, at the drawbridge, and in a little while began to howl dismally. In the meantime, the mountebank, standing in the midst of the courtyard, raised his grotesque hat and made us a very ceremonious bow, paying his compliments very volubly in execrable French, and German not much better. Then, disengaging his fiddle, he began to scrape a lively air to which he sang with a merry discord, dancing with ludicrous airs and activity that made me laugh in spite of the dog's howling. Then he advanced to the window with many smiles and salutations, and his hat in his left hand, his fiddle under his arm, and with a fluency that never took breath, he gabbled a long advertisement of all his accomplishments, and the resources of the various arts which he placed at our service, and the curiosities and entertainments which it was in his power, at our bidding, to display. "'Will your ladyships be pleased to buy an amulet against the oopire?' "'which is going like the wolf I hear through these woods,' he said, dropping his hat on the pavement. "'They are dying of it right and left, and here is a charm that never fails, "'only pinned to the pillow, and you may laugh in his face.' "'These charms consisted of oblong slips of vellum, "'with cabalistic ciphers and diagrams upon them. "'Carmilla instantly purchased one, and so did I. "'He was looking up, and we were smiling down upon him, amused. At least I can answer for myself. His piercing black eye, as he looked up in our faces, seemed to detect something that fixed for a moment his curiosity. In an instant he unrolled a leather case, full of all manner of odd little steel instruments. "'See here, my lady,' he said, displaying it and addressing me. "'I profess, among other things less useful, the art of dentistry.' "'Plague take the dog!' he interpolated. "'Silence, beast! He howled so that your ladyships can scarcely hear a word.' "'Your noble friend, the young lady at your right, has the sharpest tooth. Long, thin, pointed, like an awl, like a needle. With my sharp and long sight, as I look up, I have seen it distinctly.' Now, if it happens to hurt the young lady, and I think it must, here am I. Here are my file, my punch, my nippers. I will make it round and blunt, if her ladyship pleases. No longer the tooth of a fish, but of a beautiful young lady as she is. Hey, is the young lady displeased? Have I been too bold? Have I offended her? The young lady, indeed, looked very angry as she drew back from the window. "'How dare that mountebank insult us so! Where is your father? I shall demand redress from him. My father would have had the wretch tied up to the pump and flogged with a cart-whip and burnt to the bones with the cattle-brand.' She retired from the window a step or two, and sat down, and had hardly lost sight of the offender— when her wrath subsided as suddenly as it had risen, and she gradually recovered her usual tone, and seemed to forget the little hunchback and his follies. My father was out of spirits that evening. On coming in he told us that there had been another case, very similar to the two fatal ones which had lately occurred. 
The sister of a young peasant on his estate, only a mile away, was very ill, had been, as she described it, attacked very nearly in the same way, and was now slowly but steadily sinking. All this, said my father, is strictly referable to natural causes. These poor people infect one another with their superstitions, and so repeat in imagination the images of terror that have infested their neighbors. But that very circumstance frightens one horribly, said Carmilla. How so? inquired my father. I am so afraid of fancying I see such things. I think it would be as bad as reality. We are in God's hands. Nothing can happen without his permission, and all will end well for those who love him. He is our faithful creator. He has made us all, and will take care of us. Creator! Nature! said the young lady, in answer to my gentle father. And this disease that invades the country is natural? Nature. All things proceed from nature, don't they? All things in the heaven, in the earth, and under the earth, act and live as nature ordains? I think so. The doctor said he would come here today. Said my father, after a silence. I want to know what he thinks about it, and what he thinks we had better do. Doctors never did me any good, said Carmilla. Then you have been ill? I asked. More ill than ever you were, she answered. Long ago? Yes, a long time. I suffered from this very illness. But I forget all but my pain and weakness, and they were not so bad as are suffered in other diseases. You were very young then. I dare say, let us talk no more of it. You would not wound a friend. She looked languidly in my eyes, and passed her arm round my waist lovingly, and led me out of the room. My father was busy over some papers near the window. Why does your papa like to frighten us? said the pretty girl with a sigh and a little shudder. He doesn't, dear Carmilla, it is the very furthest thing from his mind. Are you afraid, dearest? I should be very much if I fancied there was any real danger of my being attacked as those poor people were. You are afraid to die. Yes, everyone is. But to die as lovers may. To die together, so that they may live together. Girls are caterpillars while they live in the world, to be finally butterflies when the summer comes. But in the meantime, there are grubs and larvae. Don't you see? Each with their peculiar propensities, necessities, and structure. So says Monsieur Buffon in his big book in the next room. Later in the day, the doctor came, and was closeted with Papa for some time. He was a skillful man, of sixty and upwards. He wore powder, and shaved his pale face as smooth as a pumpkin. He and Papa emerged from the room together, and I heard Papa laugh and say as they came out, Well, I do wonder at a wise man like you. What do you say to hippogriffs and dragons? The doctor was smiling and made answer, shaking his head. Nevertheless, life and death are mysterious states, 
and we know little of the resources of either. And they walked on, and I heard no more. I did not then know what the doctor had been broaching, but I think I guess it now. Chapter 5 A Wonderful Likeness This evening there arrived from Graz the grave, dark-faced son of the picture-cleaner, with a horse and cart laden with two large packing-cases, having many pictures in each. It was a journey of ten leagues, and whenever a messenger arrived at the Schloss from our little capital of Graz, we used to crowd about him in the hall to hear the news. This arrival created in our secluded quarters quite a sensation. The cases remained in the hall, and the messenger was taken charge of by the servants till he had eaten his supper. Then, with assistance, and armed with hammer, ripping chisel, and turnscrew, he met us in the hall, where we had assembled to witness the unpacking of the cases. Carmilla sat looking listlessly on, while one after the other the old pictures, nearly all portraits, which had undergone the process of renovation, were brought to light. My mother was of an old Hungarian family, and most of these pictures, which were about to be restored to their places, had come to us through her. My father had a list in his hand from which he read, as the artist rummaged out the corresponding numbers. I don't know that the pictures were very good, but they were undoubtedly very old, and some of them very curious also. They had for the most part the merit of being now seen by me, I may say, for the first time, for the smoke and dust of time had all but obliterated them. "'There is a picture I have not yet seen,' said my father. "'In one corner at the top of it is the name, as well as I could read, Marcia Karnstein, and the date 1698, and I am curious to see how it has turned out. I remembered it. It was a small picture, about a foot and a half high, and nearly square, without a frame, but it was so blackened by age I could not make it out. The artist now produced it, with evident pride. It was quite beautiful. It was startling. It seemed to live. It was the effigy— of Carmilla. Carmilla, dear, here is an absolute miracle. Here you are, living, smiling, ready to speak in this picture. Isn't it beautiful, Papa? And see even the little mole on her throat. My father laughed and said, Certainly it is a wonderful likeness. But he looked away, and to my surprise seemed but little struck by it, and went on talking to the picture-cleaner, who was also something of an artist, and discoursed with intelligence about the portraits or other works, which his art had just brought into light and color, while I was more and more lost in wonder the more I looked at the picture. "'Will you let me hang this picture in my room, Papa?' I asked. "'Certainly, dear,' he said, smiling. "'I am very glad you think it so like. It must be prettier even than I thought, if it is.' The young lady did not acknowledge this pretty speech." did not seem to hear it. She was leaning back in her seat, her fine eyes under their long lashes gazing on me in contemplation, and she smiled in a kind of rapture. And now you can read quite plainly the name that is written in the corner. It is not Marcia. It looks as if it was done in gold. The name is Mercala, Countess Karnstein, and this is a little coronet over and underneath A.D., 1698. I am descended from the Karnsteins. That is, Mama was. Ah, said the lady, languidly. So am I, 
I think, a very long descent, very ancient. Are there any Karnsteins living now? None who bear the name, I believe. The family were ruined, I believe, in some civil wars long ago, but the ruins of the castle are only about three miles away. How interesting, she said languidly. But see what beautiful moonlight. She glanced through the hall door, which stood a little open. Suppose you take a little ramble around the court and look down at the road and river. It is so like the night you came to us, I said. She sighed, smiling. She rose, and with each her arm about the other's waist, we walked out upon the pavement. In silence, slowly we walked down to the drawbridge where the beautiful landscape opened before us. And so you were thinking of the night I came here, she almost whispered. Are you glad I came? Delighted, dear Carmilla, I answered. And you asked for the picture you think like me to hang in your room, she murmured with a sigh, as she drew her arm closer about my waist and let her pretty head sink upon my shoulder. How romantic you are, Carmilla, I said. Whenever you tell me your story, it will be made up chiefly of some one great romance. She kissed me silently. I am sure, Carmilla, you have been in love, that there is at this moment an affair of the heart going on. I have been in love with no one, and never shall, she whispered, unless it should be with you. How beautiful she looked in the moonlight! Shy and strange was the look with which she quickly hid her face in my neck and hair, with tumultuous sighs that seemed almost to sob, and pressed in mine a hand that trembled. Her soft cheek was glowing against mine. Darling, darling, she murmured, I live in you, and you would die for me. I love you so. I started from her. She was gazing on me with eyes from which all fire, all meaning had flown, and a face colorless and apathetic. Is there a chill in the air, dear? she said drowsily. I almost shiver. Have I been dreaming? Let us come in. Come. Come, come in. You look ill, Carmilla. A little faint. You certainly must take some wine, I said. Yes. I will. I'm better now. I shall be quite well in a few minutes. Yes, do give me a little wine, answered Carmilla as we approached the door. Let us look again for a moment. It is the last time, perhaps, I shall see the moonlight with you. How do you feel now, dear Carmilla? Are you really better? I asked. I was beginning to take alarm. Lest she should have been stricken with the strange epidemic that they said had invaded the country about us. Papa would be grieved beyond measure, I added, if he thought you were ever so little ill, without immediately letting us know. We have a very skilful doctor near us, the physician who was with Papa today. I'm sure he is. I know how kind you all are, but, dear child, I am quite well again. There is nothing ever wrong with me but a little weakness. People say I am languid. I am incapable of exertion. I can scarcely walk as far as a child of three years old, and every now and then the little strength I have falters, and I become as you have just seen me. 
but after all I am very easily set up again. In a moment I am perfectly myself. See how I have recovered. So indeed she had, and she and I talked a great deal, and very animated she was, and the remainder of that evening passed without any recurrence of what I call her infatuations. I mean her crazy talk and looks, which embarrassed and even frightened me. But there occurred that night an event which gave my thoughts quite a new turn, and seemed to startle even Carmilla's languid nature into momentary energy. Chapter 6 A Very Strange Agony When we got into the drawing-room, and had sat down to our coffee and chocolate, although Carmilla did not take any, she seemed quite herself again, and Madame and Mademoiselle de La Fontaine joined us, and made a little card-party, in the course of which Papa came in for what he called his dish of tea. When the game was over he sat down beside Carmilla on the sofa, and asked her a little anxiously whether she had heard from her mother since her arrival. She answered no. He then asked whether she knew where a letter would reach her at present. "'I cannot tell,' she answered ambiguously. "'But I have been thinking of leaving you. You have been already too hospitable and too kind to me. I have given you an infinity of trouble, and I should wish to take a carriage to-morrow and post in pursuit of her.' I know where I shall ultimately find her, although I dare not yet tell you. "'But you must not dream of any such thing,' exclaimed my father, to my great relief. "'We can't afford to lose you so, and I won't consent to your leaving us, except under the care of your mother, who was so good as to consent to your remaining with us till she herself should return. I should be quite happy if I knew that you heard from her. But this evening the accounts of the progress of the mysterious disease that has invaded our neighborhood grow even more alarming. And, my beautiful guest, I do feel the responsibility, unaided by advice from your mother, very much. But I shall do my best. And one thing is certain, that you must not think of leaving us without her distinct direction to that effect. We should suffer too much in parting from you to consent to it easily. Thank you, sir. "'A thousand times for your hospitality,' she answered, smiling bashfully. "'You have all been too kind to me. "'I have seldom been so happy in all my life before, "'as in your beautiful chateau, under your care, "'and in the society of your dear daughter.' "'So he gallantly, in his old-fashioned way, kissed her hand, "'smiling and pleased at her little speech.' I accompanied Carmilla as usual to her room, and sat and chatted with her while she was preparing for bed. "'Do you think,' I said at length, "'that you will ever confide fully in me?' She turned round, smiling, but made no answer, only continued to smile on me. "'You won't answer that?' I said. "'You can't answer pleasantly. I ought not to have asked you.' "'You are quite right to ask me that, or anything. "'You do not know how dear you are to me, "'or you could not think any confidence too great to look for. "'But I am under vows, no none half so awfully, "'and I dare not tell my story yet, even to you. "'The time is very near when you shall know everything. "'You will think me cruel, very selfish, "'but love is always selfish.' the more ardent, the more selfish. How jealous I am, you cannot know. You must come with me, 
loving me, to death, or else hate me, and still come with me, and hating me through death and after. There is no such word as indifference in my apathetic nature. Now, Carmilla, you are going to talk your wild nonsense again, I said hastily. Not I. Silly little fool as I am, and full of whims and fancies. For your sake, I'll talk like a sage. Were you ever at a ball? No, how you do run on. What is it like? How charming it must be. I almost forget it is years ago. I laughed. You are not so old. Your first ball can hardly be forgotten yet. I remember everything about it, with an effort. I see it all, as divers see what is going on above them, through a medium, dense, rippling but transparent. There occurred that night what has confused the picture and made its colors faint. I was all but assassinated in my bed. Wounded here, she touched her breast, and never was the same since. Were you near dying? Yes, very. A cruel love, strange love that would have taken my life. Love will have its sacrifices. No sacrifice without blood. Let us go to sleep now. I feel so lazy. How can I get up just now and lock my door? She was lying with her tiny hands buried in her rich wavy hair, under her cheek. Her little head upon the pillow and her glittering eyes followed me whenever I moved, with a kind of shy smile that I could not decipher. I bid her good night, and crept from the room with an uncomfortable sensation. I often wondered whether our pretty guest ever said her prayers. I certainly had never seen her upon her knees. In the morning she never came down until long after our family prayers were over, and at night she never left the drawing room to attend our brief evening prayers in the hall. If it had not been that it had casually come out in one of our careless talks that she had been baptized, I should have doubted her being a Christian. Religion was a subject on which I had never heard her speak a word. If I had known the world better, this particular neglect or antipathy would not have so much surprised me. The precautions of nervous people are infectious, and persons of a like temperament are pretty sure, after a time, to imitate them. I had adopted Carmilla's habit of locking her bedroom door, having taken into my head all her whimsical alarms about midnight invaders and prowling assassins. I had also adopted her precaution of making a brief search through her room— to satisfy herself that no lurking assassin or robber was ensconced. These wise measures taken, I got into my bed and fell asleep. A light was burning in my room. This was an old habit, of very early date, and which nothing could have tempted me to dispense with. Thus fortified, I might take my rest in peace. But dreams come through stone walls, light up dark rooms, or darken light ones— and their persons make their exits and their entrances as they please, and laugh at locksmiths. I had a dream that night that was the beginning of a very strange agony. I cannot call it a nightmare, for I was quite conscious of being asleep. But I was equally conscious of being in my room, and lying in bed precisely as I actually was. I saw, or fancied I saw, 
the room and its furniture just as I had seen it last, except that it was very dark, and I saw something moving round the foot of the bed, which at first I could not accurately distinguish. But I soon saw that it was a sooty black animal that resembled a monstrous cat. It appeared to me about four or five feet long, for it measured fully the length of the hearth rug as it passed over it, and it continued toing and froing with the lithe, sinister restlessness of a beast in a cage. I could not cry out, although, as you may suppose, I was terrified. Its pace was growing faster, and the room rapidly darker and darker, and at length so dark that I could no longer see anything of it but its eyes. I felt it spring lightly on the bed. The two broad eyes approached my face, and suddenly I felt a stinging pain as if two large needles darted an inch or two apart deep into my breast. I waked with a scream. The room was lighted by the candle that burnt there all through the night, and I saw a female figure standing at the foot of the bed a little at the right side. It was in a dark, loose dress, and its hair was down and covered its shoulders. A block of stone could not have been more still. There was not the slightest stir of respiration. As I stared at it, the figure appeared to have changed its place, and was now nearer the door, then close to it, the door opened. And it passed out. I was now relieved and able to breathe and move. My first thought was that Carmilla had been playing me a trick and that I had forgotten to secure my door. I hastened to it and found it locked as usual on the inside. I was afraid to open it. I was horrified. I sprang into my bed and covered my head up in the bedclothes and lay there more dead than alive till morning. Chapter Seven, Descending. It would be vain my attempting to tell you the horror with which even now I recall the occurrence of that night. It was no such transitory terror as a dream leaves behind it. It seemed to deepen by time, and communicated itself to the room and the very furniture that had encompassed the apparition. I could not bear next day to be alone for a moment. I should have told Papa, but for two opposite reasons. At one time I thought he would laugh at my story, and I could not bear its being treated as a jest. And at another, I thought he might fancy that I had been attacked by the mysterious complaint which had invaded our neighborhood. I had myself no misgiving of the kind, and as he had been rather an invalid for some time, I was afraid of alarming him. I was comfortable enough with my good-natured companions, Madame Perrodon, and the vivacious Mademoiselle La Fontaine. They both perceived that I was out of spirits and nervous, and at length I told them what lay so heavy at my heart. Mademoiselle laughed, but I fancied that Madame Perrodon looked anxious. By the by, said Mademoiselle, laughing, the long lime tree walk behind Carmilla's bedroom window is haunted. Nonsense! Exclaimed Madame, who probably thought the theme rather inopportune. And who tells that story, my dear? Martin says he came up twice when the old yard gate was being repaired before sunrise, and twice saw the same female figure walking down the lime tree avenue. So well he might, as long as there are cows to milk in the river fields," said Madame. I dare say. But Martin chooses to be frightened, 
and never did I see fool more frightened. You must not say a word about it to Carmilla, because she can see down that walk from her room window, I interposed, and she is, if possible, a greater coward than I. Carmilla came down rather later than usual that day. I was so frightened last night, she said, so soon as we were together. And I am sure I should have seen something dreadful if it had not been for that charm I bought from the poor little hunchback who I called such hard names. I had a dream of something black coming round my bed, and I awoke in perfect horror, and I really thought for some seconds I saw a dark figure near the chimney piece. But I felt under my pillow for my charm, and the moment my fingers touched it, the figure disappeared. And I felt quite certain, only that I had it by me, that something frightful would have made its appearance, and perhaps throttled me as it did those poor people we heard of. Well, listen to me, I began, and recounted my adventure, at the recital of which she appeared horrified. And had you the charm near you? she asked earnestly. No, I had dropped it into a china vase in the drawing room. But I shall certainly take it with me to night, as you have so much faith in it. At this distance of time, I cannot tell you, or even understand, how I overcame my horror so effectually as to lie alone in my room that night. I remember distinctly that I pinned the charm to my pillow. I fell asleep almost immediately, and slept even more soundly than usual all night. Next night I passed as well. My sleep was delightfully deep and dreamless. But I wakened with a sense of lassitude and melancholy, which, however, did not exceed a degree that was almost luxurious. Well, I told you so, said Carmilla, when I described my night's sleep. I had such delightful sleep myself last night. I pinned the charm to the breast of my nightdress. It was too far away the night before. I am quite sure it was all fancy, except the dreams. I used to think that evil spirits made dreams, but our doctor told me it is no such thing. Only a fever passing by, or some other malady, as they often do, he said, knocks at the door, and not being able to get in, passes on with that alarm. And what do you think the charm is? said I. It has been fumigated or immersed in some drug. And is an antidote against the malaria, she answered. Then it acts only on the body? Certainly. You don't suppose that evil spirits are frightened by bits of ribbon or the perfumes of a druggist's shop? No. These complaints, wandering in the air, begin by trying the nerves and so infect the brain. But before they can seize upon you, the antidote repels them. That, I am sure, is what the charm has done for us. It is nothing magical. It is simply natural. I should have been happier if I could quite have agreed with Carmilla, but I did my best, and the impression was a little losing its force. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude, and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I would not have interrupted 
dim thoughts of death began to open, and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. I would not admit that I was ill. I would not consent to tell my papa, or to have the doctor sent for. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever, and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardor the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal ever suffered. There was an unaccountable fascination in its earlier symptoms that more than reconciled me to the incapacitating effect of that stage of the malady. This fascination increased for a time, until it reached a certain point when gradually a sense of the horrible mingled itself with it, deepening, as you shall hear, until it discolored and perverted the whole state of my life. The first change I experienced was rather agreeable. It was very near the turning point from which began the descent of Avernus. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was of that pleasant, peculiar, cold thrill which we feel in bathing when we move against the current of a river. This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable, and were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons, or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression, and a sense of exhaustion, as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams there remained on waking, a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice, of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly, and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck. Sometimes it was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer, and longer, and more lovingly as they reached my throat, but there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly and full-drawn, a sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation supervened and turned into a dreadful convulsion in which my senses left me, and I became unconscious. It was now three weeks since the commencement of this unaccountable state. My sufferings had, during the last week, told upon my appearance. I had grown pale. My eyes were dilated and darkened underneath— and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense this was true. I had no pain. I could complain of no bodily derangement. 
My complaint seemed to be one of the imagination, or the nerves, and horrible as my sufferings were, I kept them, with a morbid reserve, very nearly to myself. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the oopire, for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days, when death put an end to their miseries. Carmilla complained of dreams and feverish sensations, but by no means of so alarming a kind as mine. I say that mine were extremely alarming. Had I been capable of comprehending my condition, I would have invoked aid and advice on my knees. The narcotic of an unsuspected influence was acting upon me, and my perceptions were benumbed. I am going to tell you now of a dream that led immediately to an odd discovery. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one, sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said, Your mother warns you to be aware of the assassin. At the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla, standing near the foot of my bed in her white nightdress, bathed from her chin to her feet in one great stain of blood. I wakened with a shriek, possessed with the idea that Carmilla was being murdered. I remember springing from my bed, and my next recollection is that of standing on the lobby crying for help. Madame and Mademoiselle came scurrying out of their rooms in alarm. A lamp burned always on the lobby, and seeing me, they soon learned the cause of my terror. I insisted on our knocking at Carmilla's door. Our knocking was unanswered. It soon became a pounding and an uproar. We shrieked her name, but all was vain. We all grew frightened, for the door was locked. We hurried back in panic to my room. There we rang the bell long and furiously. If my father's room had been at that side of the house, we would have called him up at once to our aid. But alas, he was quite out of hearing, and to reach him involved an excursion for which we none of us had courage. Servants, however, soon came running up the stairs. I had got on my dressing-gown and slippers, meanwhile, and my companions were already similarly furnished. Recognizing the voices of the servants on the lobby, we sallied out together, and having renewed as fruitlessly our summons at Carmilla's door, I ordered the men to force the lock. They did so, and we stood, holding our lights aloft in the doorway, and so stared into the room. We called her by name, but there was still no reply. We looked round the room. Everything was undisturbed. It was exactly in the state in which I had left it on bidding her good night. But Carmilla was gone. Chapter 8 Search At sight of the room, perfectly undisturbed except for our violent entrance, we began to cool a little, and soon recovered our senses sufficiently to dismiss the men. It had struck Mademoiselle that possibly Carmilla had been wakened by the uproar at her door, and in her first panic had jumped from her bed, and hid herself in a press, or behind a curtain, from which she could not, of course, emerge until the major-domo and his myrmidons had withdrawn. We now recommenced our search, and began to call her name again. It was all to no purpose. Our perplexity and agitation increased. We examined the windows, but they were secured. 
I implored of Carmilla, if she had concealed herself, to play this cruel trick no longer, to come out and to end our anxieties. It was all useless. I was by this time convinced that she was not in the room, nor in the dressing-room, the door of which was still locked on this side. She could not have passed it. I was utterly puzzled. Had Carmilla discovered one of those secret passages which the old housekeeper said were known to exist in the Schloss, although the tradition of their exact situation had been lost? A little time would, no doubt, explain all, utterly perplexed as for the present we were. It was past four o'clock, and I preferred passing the remaining hours of darkness in Madame's room. Daylight brought no solution of the difficulty. The whole household, with my father at his head, was in a state of agitation next morning. Every part of the chateau was searched. The grounds were explored. No trace of the missing lady could be discovered. The stream was about to be dragged. My father was in distraction. What a tale to have to tell the poor girl's mother on her return! I, too, was almost beside myself, though my grief was of quite a different kind. The morning was passed in alarm and excitement. It was now one o'clock. And still no tidings. I ran up to Carmilla's room and found her standing at her dressing table. I was astounded. I could not believe my eyes. She beckoned to me with her pretty finger in silence. Her face expressed extreme fear. I ran to her in an ecstasy of joy. I kissed and embraced her again and again. I ran to the bell and rang it vehemently to bring others to the spot who might at once relieve my father's anxiety. Dear Carmilla, what has become of you all this time? We have been in agonies of anxiety about you, I exclaimed. Where have you been? How did you come back? Last night has been a night of wonders, she said. For mercy's sake, explain all you can. It was past two last night, she said. When I went to sleep as usual in my bed, with my doors locked, that of the dressing room and that opening upon the gallery. My sleep was uninterrupted, and, so far as I know, dreamless. But I woke just now on the sofa in the dressing room there, and I found the door between the rooms open, and the other door forced. How could all this have happened without my being wakened? It must have been accompanied with a great deal of noise, and I am particularly easily wakened. And how could I have been carried out of my bed without my sleep having been interrupted, I whom the slightest stir startles? By this time, Madame, Mademoiselle, my father, and a number of the servants were in the room. Carmilla was, of course, overwhelmed with inquiries, congratulations, and welcomes. She had but one story to tell, and seemed the least able of all the party to suggest any way of accounting for what had happened. My father took a turn up and down the room, thinking. I saw Carmilla's eye follow him for a moment, with a sly, dark glance. When my father had sent the servants away, Mademoiselle having gone in search of a little bottle of valerian and sal volatile, and there being no one now in the room with Carmilla, except my father, Madame, and myself, he came to her thoughtfully, took her hand very kindly, and led her to the sofa and sat down beside her. Will you forgive me, my dear, if I risk a conjecture and ask a question? Who can have better right? she said. Ask what you please, and I will tell you everything. But my story is simply one of bewilderment and darkness. I know absolutely nothing. 
Put any question you please, but you know, of course, the limitations Mama has placed me under. Perfectly, my dear child. I need not approach the topics on which she desires our silence. Now, the marvel of last night consists in your having been removed from your bed and your room, without being wakened, and this removal having occurred apparently while the windows were still secured, and the two doors locked upon the inside. I will tell you my theory, and ask you a question. Carmilla was leaning on her hand dejectedly. Madame and I were listening breathlessly. Now my question is this. Have you ever been suspected of walking in your sleep? Never, since I was very young indeed. But you did walk in your sleep when you were young. Yes, I know I did. I have been told so often by my old nurse. My father smiled and nodded. Well, what has happened is this. You got up in your sleep, unlocked the door, not leaving the key, as usual, in the lock, but taking it out and locking it on the outside. You again took the key out, and carried it away with you to some one of the five-and-twenty rooms on this floor, or perhaps upstairs or downstairs. There are so many rooms and closets, so much heavy furniture, and such accumulations of lumber that it would require a week to search this old house thoroughly. Do you see now what I mean? I do. But not all, she answered. And how, Papa, do you account for her finding herself on the sofa in the dressing-room, which we had searched so carefully? She came there after you had searched it, still in her sleep, and at last awoke spontaneously, and was as much surprised to find herself where she was as anyone else. I wish all mysteries were as easily and innocently explained as yours, Carmilla, he said, laughing. And so we may congratulate ourselves on the certainty that the most natural explanation of the occurrence is one that involves no drugging, no tampering with locks, no burglars or poisoners or witches, nothing that need alarm Carmilla or anyone else for our safety. Carmilla was looking charmingly. Nothing could be more beautiful than her tints. Her beauty was, I think, enhanced by that graceful languor that was peculiar to her. I think my father was silently contrasting her looks with mine, for he said, I wish my poor Laura was looking more like herself. And he sighed. So our alarms were happily ended, and Carmilla restored to her friends. Chapter 9 The Doctor as Carmilla would not hear of an attendant sleeping in her room, my father arranged that a servant should sleep outside her door, so that she would not attempt to make another such excursion without being arrested at her own door. That night passed quietly, and next morning early the doctor, whom my father had sent for without telling me a word about it, arrived to see me. Madame accompanied me to the library, and there the grave little doctor, with white hair and spectacles, whom I mentioned before, was waiting to receive me. I told him my story, and as I proceeded he grew graver and graver. We were standing, he and I, in the recess of one of the windows facing one another. When my statement was over, he leaned with his shoulders against the wall, and with his eyes fixed on me earnestly, with an interest in which was a dash of horror. After a minute's reflection, he asked Madame if he could see my father. 
He was sent for accordingly, and as he entered smiling, he said, "'I dare say, doctor, you are going to tell me that I am an old fool for having brought you here. I hope I am.' But his smile faded into shadow as the doctor, with a very grave face, beckoned to him. He and the doctor talked for some time in the same recess where I had just conferred with the physician. It seemed an earnest and argumentative conversation. The room is very large, and I and Madame stood together, burning with curiosity, at the farther end. Not a word could we hear, however, for they spoke in a very low tone, and the deep recess of the window quite concealed the doctor from view, and very nearly my father, whose foot, arm, and shoulder only we could see, and the voices were, I suppose, all the less audible for the sort of closet which the thick wall and window formed. After a time my father's face looked into the room. It was pale, thoughtful, and, I fancied, agitated. "'Laura, dear, come here for a moment. Madame, we shan't trouble you, the doctor says, at present.' Accordingly I approached, for the first time a little alarmed, for although I felt very weak, I did not feel ill. And strength, one always fancies, is a thing that may be picked up when we please. My father held out his hand to me, as I drew near, but he was looking at the doctor, and he said, "'It certainly is very odd. I don't understand it quite. Laura, come here, dear. Now attend to Dr. Spielsberg, and recollect yourself.' You mentioned a sensation like that of two needles piercing the skin, somewhere about your neck, on the night when you first experienced your horrible dream. Is there still any soreness? None at all, I answered. Can you indicate with your finger about the point at which you think this occurred? Very little below my throat. Here, I answered. I wore a morning dress which covered the place I pointed to. "'Now you can satisfy yourself,' said the doctor. "'You won't mind your papa's lowering your dress a very little. "'It is necessary to detect a symptom of the complaint under which you have been suffering.' "'I acquiesced. "'It was only an inch or two below the edge of my collar. "'God bless me! "'So it is!' exclaimed my father, growing pale. "'You see it now with your own eyes,' said the doctor, with a gloomy triumph. "'What is it?' I exclaimed, beginning to be frightened. "'Nothing, my dear young lady, but a small blue spot, about the size of the tip of your little finger. And now,' he continued, turning to Papa, "'the question is, what is best to be done?' "'Is there any danger?' I urged, in great trepidation. "'I trust not, my dear,' answered the doctor. "'I don't see why you should not recover. "'I don't see why you should not immediately begin to get better.' That is the point at which the sense of strangulation begins. Yes, I answered. And recollect as well as you can. The same point was a kind of center of that thrill which you described just now, like the current of a cold stream running against you. It may have been. I think it was. Aye, you see, he added, turning to my father. Shall I say a word to madame? Certainly, said my father. He called Madame to him and said, I find my young friend here far from well. It won't be of any great consequence, I hope, 
but it will be necessary that some steps be taken, which I will explain by and by. But in the meantime, madame, you will be so good as to not let Miss Laura be alone for one moment. That is the only direction I need give for the present. It is indispensable. We may rely upon your kindness, madame, I know, added my father. Madame satisfied him eagerly. And you, dear Laura, I know you will observe the doctor's direction. I shall have to ask your opinion upon another patient, whose symptoms slightly resemble those of my daughter, that have just been detailed to you, very much milder in degree, but I believe quite of the same sort. She is a young lady, our guest, but as you say you will be passing this way again this evening, you can't do better than take your supper here, and you can then see her. She does not come down till the afternoon. I thank you, said the doctor. I shall be with you then at about seven this evening. And then they repeated their directions to me and madame, and with this parting charge my father left us and walked out with the doctor, and I saw them pacing together up and down between the road and the moat on the grassy platform in front of the castle, evidently absorbed in earnest conversation. The doctor did not return. I saw him mount his horse there, take his leave, and ride away eastward through the forest. Nearly at the same time I saw the man arrive from Dranfield with the letters, and dismount and hand the bag to my father. In the meantime, Madame and I were both busy, lost in conjecture as to the reasons of the singular and earnest direction which the doctor and my father had concurred in imposing. Madame, as she afterwards told me, was afraid the doctor apprehended a sudden seizure, and that without prompt assistance I might either lose my life in a fit, or at least be seriously hurt. The interpretation did not strike me, and I fancied, perhaps luckily for my nerves, that the arrangement was prescribed simply to secure a companion who would prevent my taking too much exercise, or eating unripe fruit, or doing any of the fifty foolish things to which young people are supposed to be prone. About half an hour after my father came in, he had a letter in his hand, and said, This letter had been delayed. It is from General Spielsdorf. He might have been here yesterday. He may not come until tomorrow, or he may be here today. He put the letter into my hand, but he did not look pleased, as he used when a guest, especially one so much loved as the general, was coming. On the contrary, he looked as if he wished him at the bottom of the Red Sea. There was plainly something on his mind which he did not choose to divulge. "'Papa, darling, will you tell me this?' said I, suddenly laying my hand on his arm, and looking, I am sure, imploringly in his face. "'Perhaps,' he answered, smoothing my hair caressingly over my eyes. "'Does the doctor think me very ill?' "'No, dear. He thinks, if right steps are taken, you will be quite well again, at least on the high road to a complete recovery in a day or two. he answered a little dryly. I wish our good friend, the general, had chosen any other time. That is, I wish you had been perfectly well to receive him. But do tell me, Papa, I insisted. What does he think is the matter with me? Nothing. You must not plague me with questions, he answered, with more irritation than I ever remember him to have displayed before. And seeing that I looked wounded, I suppose, he kissed me and added, You shall know all about it in a day or two. That is, all that I know. In the meantime, you are not to trouble your head about it. He turned and left the room. 
but came back before I had done wondering and puzzling over the oddity of all this. It was merely to say that he was going to Karnstein, and had ordered the carriage to be ready at twelve, and that I and Madame should accompany him. He was going to see the priest who lived near those picturesque grounds upon business, and as Carmilla had never seen them, she could follow, when she came down, with Mademoiselle, who would bring materials for what you call a picnic, which might be laid for us in the ruined castle. At twelve o'clock, accordingly, I was ready, and not long after, my father, Madame, and I set out upon our projected drive. Passing the drawbridge, we turned to the right, and followed the road over the steep Gothic bridge westward, to reach the deserted village and ruined castle of Karnstein. No sylvan drive can be fancied prettier. The ground breaks into gentle hills and hollows, all clothed with beautiful wood, totally destitute of the comparative formality which artificial planting and early culture and pruning impart. The irregularities of the ground often lead the road out of its course, and cause it to wind beautifully round the sides of broken hollows and the steeper sides of the hills, among varieties of ground almost inexhaustible. Turning one of these points, we suddenly encountered our old friend, the general, riding towards us attended by a mounted servant. His portmanteaus were following in a hired wagon, such as we term a cart. The general dismounted as we pulled up, and after the usual greetings, was easily persuaded to accept the vacant seat in the carriage, and send his horse on with his servant to the Schloss. CHAPTER Ten, BEREAVED it was about ten months since we had last seen him, but that time had sufficed to make an alteration of years in his appearance. He had grown thinner. Something of gloom and anxiety had taken the place of that cordial serenity which used to characterize his features. His dark blue eyes, always penetrating, now gleamed with a sterner light from under his shaggy gray eyebrows. It was not such a change as grief alone usually induces— and angrier passions seemed to have had their share in bringing it about. We had not long resumed our drive, when the general began to talk, with his usual soldierly directness, of the bereavement, as he termed it, which he had sustained in the death of his beloved niece and ward. And he then broke out in a tone of intense bitterness and fury, inveighing against the hellish arts to which she had fallen a victim, and expressing, with more exasperation than piety, his wonder that heaven should tolerate so monstrous an indulgence of the lusts and malignity of hell. My father, who saw at once that something very extraordinary had befallen, asked him, if not too painful to him, to detail the circumstances which he thought justified the strong terms in which he expressed himself. "'I should tell you with all pleasure,' said the general, "'but you would not believe me.' "'Why should I not?' he asked. "'Because,' he answered testily, "'you believe in nothing but what consists with your own prejudices and illusions. "'I remember when I was like you, but I have learned better.' "'Try me,' said my father. "'I am not such a dogmatist as you suppose.' "'Besides which, I very well know that you generally require proof for what you believe.' and am therefore very strongly predisposed to respect your conclusions. You are right in supposing that I have not been led lightly into a belief in the marvellous, for what I have experienced is marvellous. 
and I have been forced by extraordinary evidence to credit that which ran counter diametrically to all my theories. I have been made the dupe of a preternatural conspiracy. Notwithstanding his professions of confidence in the general's penetration, I saw my father at this point glance at the general, with, as I thought, a marked suspicion of his sanity. The general did not see it, luckily. He was looking gloomily and curiously into the glades and vistas of the woods that were opening before us. "'You are going to the ruins of Karnstein,' he said. "'Yes. It is a lucky coincidence. Do you know I was going to ask you to bring me there to inspect them? I have a special object in exploring. There is a ruined chapel, ain't there, with a great many tombs of that extinct family?' "'So there are.' "'Highly interesting,' said my father. "'I hope you are thinking of claiming the title and estates?' "'My father said this gaily, "'but the general did not recollect the laugh "'or even the smile which courtesy exacts for a friend's joke. "'On the contrary, he looked grave and even fierce, "'ruminating on a matter that stirred his anger and horror. "'Something very different,' he said gruffly. I mean to unearth some of those fine people. I hope, by God's blessing, to accomplish a pious sacrilege here, which will relieve our earth of certain monsters, and enable honest people to sleep in their beds without being assailed by murderers. I have strange things to tell you, my dear friend, such as I myself would have scouted as incredible a few months since. My father looked at him again, but this time not with a glance of suspicion, with an eye, rather, of keen intelligence and alarm. "'The house of Karnstein,' he said, "'has been long extinct. A hundred years, at least. My dear wife was maternally descended from the Karnsteins. But the name and title have long ceased to exist. The castle is a ruin. The very village is deserted. It is fifty years since the smoke of a chimney was seen there. Not a roof left.' quite true. I have heard a great deal about that since I last saw you, a great deal that will astonish you. But I had better relate everything in the order in which it occurred, said the general. You saw my dear ward, my child, I may call her. No creature could have been more beautiful, and only three months ago none more blooming. Yes, poor thing. When I saw her last she certainly was quite lovely, said my father. I was grieved and shocked more than I can tell you, my dear friend. I knew what a blow it was to you. He took the general's hand, and they exchanged a kind pressure. Tears gathered in the old soldier's eyes. He did not seek to conceal them. He said, We have been very old friends. I knew you would feel for me, childless as I am. She had become an object of very near interest to me and repaid my care by an affection that cheered my home and made my life happy. That is all gone. The years that remain to me on earth may not be very long, but by God's mercy I hope to accomplish a service to mankind before I die, and to subserve the vengeance of heaven upon the fiends who have murdered my poor child in the spring of her hopes and beauty. You said just now that you intended relating everything as it occurred, said my father. "'Pray do, I assure you that it is not mere curiosity that prompts me.' "'By this time we had reached the point at which the Drunstall Road, by which the general had come, 
diverges from the road which we were travelling to Karnstein. "'How far is it to the ruins?' inquired the general, looking anxiously forward. "'About half a league,' answered my father. "'Pray, let us hear the story you were so good as to promise.' CHAPTER Eleven, THE STORY "'With all my heart,' said the general, with an effort. And after a short pause in which to arrange his subject, he commenced one of the strangest narratives I ever heard. "'My dear child was looking forward with great pleasure to the visit you had been so good as to arrange for her to your charming daughter.' Here he made me a gallant but melancholy bow. In the meantime, we had an invitation to my old friend the Count Karlsfeld, whose schloss is about six leagues to the other side of Karnstein. It was to attend the series of fêtes which, you remember, were given by him in honor of his illustrious visitor, the Grand Duke Charles. Yes, and very splendid, I believe, they were, said my father. Princely! But then his hospitalities are quite regal. He has Aladdin's lamp. The night from which my sorrow dates was devoted to a magnificent masquerade. The grounds were thrown open, the trees hung with colored lamps. There was such a display of fireworks as Paris itself had never witnessed. And such music—music, you know, is my weakness—such ravishing music— the finest instrumental band, perhaps, in the world, and the finest singers who could be collected from all the great operas in Europe. As you wandered through these fantastically illuminated grounds, the moon-lighted chateau throwing a rosy light from its long rows of windows, you would suddenly hear these ravishing voices stealing from the silence of some grove, or rising from boats upon the lake. I felt myself, as I looked and listened, "'carried back into the romance and poetry of my early youth. "'When the fireworks were ended, and the ball beginning, "'we returned to the noble suite of rooms "'that were thrown open to the dancers. "'A masked ball, you know, is a beautiful sight, "'but so brilliant a spectacle of the kind I never saw before. "'It was a very aristocratic assembly. "'I was myself almost the only nobody present.' My dear child was looking quite beautiful. She wore no mask. Her excitement and delight added an unspeakable charm to her features, always lovely. I remarked a young lady, dressed magnificently, but wearing a mask, who appeared to me to be observing my ward with extraordinary interest. I had seen her earlier in the evening, in the great hall, and again for a few minutes walking near us, on the terrace under the castle windows, similarly employed. A lady, also masked, richly and gravely dressed, and with a stately air like a person of rank, accompanied her as a chaperone. Had the young lady not worn a mask, I could, of course, have been much more certain upon the question whether she was really watching my poor darling. I am now well assured that she was. We were now in one of the salons. My poor dear child had been dancing, and was resting a little in one of the chairs near the door. I was standing near. 
The two ladies I have mentioned had approached, and the younger took the chair next my ward, while her companion stood by me, and for a little time addressed herself in low tone to her charge. Availing herself of the privilege of her mask, she turned to me, and in the tone of an old friend, and calling me by name, opened a conversation with me, which piqued my curiosity a good deal. She referred to many scenes where she had met me, at court and at distinguished houses. She alluded to little incidents which I had long ceased to think of, but which, I found, had only lain in abeyance in my memory, for they instantly started into life at her touch. I became more and more curious to ascertain who she was every moment. She parried my attempts to discover very adroitly and pleasantly. The knowledge she showed of many passages in my life seemed to me all but unaccountable, and she appeared to take a not unnatural pleasure in foiling my curiosity, and in seeing me flounder in my eager perplexity from one conjecture to another. In the meantime, the young lady, whom her mother called by the odd name of Milarka, when she once or twice addressed her, had, with the same ease and grace, got into conversation with my ward. She introduced herself by saying that her mother was a very old acquaintance of mine. She spoke of the agreeable audacity which a mask rendered practicable. She talked like a friend. She admired her dress, and insinuated very prettily her admiration of her beauty. She amused her with laughing criticisms upon the people who crowded the ballroom, and laughed at my poor child's fun. She was very witty and lively when she pleased— and after a time they had grown very good friends, and the young stranger lowered her mask, displaying a remarkably beautiful face. I had never seen it before, neither had my dear child. But though it was new to us, the features were so engaging, as well as lovely, that it was impossible not to feel the attraction powerfully. My poor girl did so. I never saw any one more taken with another at first sight, unless, indeed, it was the stranger herself, who seemed quite to have lost her heart to her. In the meantime, availing myself of the license of a masquerade, I put not a few questions to the elder lady. "'You have puzzled me utterly,' I said, laughing. "'Is that not enough?' "'Won't you now consent to stand on equal terms, "'and do me the kindness to remove your mask?' "'Can any request be more unreasonable?' she replied. "'Ask a lady to yield an advantage. "'Besides, how do you know you should recognize me? "'Years make changes.' "'As you see,' I said with a bow, and, I suppose, a rather melancholy little laugh. "'As philosophers tell us,' she said. "'And how do you know that a sight of my face would help you?' "'I should take chance for that,' I answered. "'It is vain trying to make yourself out an old woman. Your figure betrays you.' "'Years, nevertheless, have passed since I saw you. Rather since you saw me.' "'for that is what I am considering. "'Milarka there is my daughter. "'I cannot then be young, "'even in the opinion of people "'whom time has taught to be indulgent, 
and I may not like to be compared with what you remember me. You have no mask to remove. You can offer me nothing in exchange. My petition is to your pity, to remove it. And mine to yours, to let it stay where it is, she replied. Well, then, at least you will tell me whether you are French or German. You speak both languages so perfectly. I don't think I shall tell you that, General. You intend a surprise, and are meditating the particular point of attack. At all events, you won't deny this, I said, that being honored by your permission to converse, I ought to know how to address you. Shall I say, Madame la Comtesse? She laughed, and she would no doubt have met me with another evasion, if indeed I can treat any occurrence in an interview every circumstance of which was prearranged, as I now believe, with the profoundest cunning, as liable to be modified by accident. As to that, she began, but she was interrupted, almost as she opened her lips, by a gentleman dressed in black who looked particularly elegant and distinguished, with this drawback that his face was the most deadly pale I ever saw, except in death. He was in no masquerade, in the plain evening dress of a gentleman, and he said, without a smile, but with a courtly and unusually low bow, Will Madame la Comtesse permit me to say a very few words which may interest her? The lady turned quickly to him, and touched her lip in a token of silence. She then said to me, Keep my place for me, General. I shall return when I have said a few words. And with this injunction, playfully given, she walked a little aside with the gentleman in black, and talked for some minutes, apparently very earnestly. They then walked away slowly together in the crowd, and I lost them for some minutes. I spent the interval in cudgeling my brains for a conjecture as to the identity of the lady who seemed to remember me so kindly, and I was thinking of turning about and joining in the conversation between my pretty ward and the countess's daughter, and trying whether, by the time she returned, I might not have a surprise in store for her, by having her name, title, chateau, and estates at my fingers' ends. But at this moment she returned, accompanied by the pale man in black, who said, I shall return, and inform Madame la Comtesse when her carriage is at the door. He withdrew with a bow. Chapter 12 A Petition Then we are to lose Madame la Comtesse, but I hope for only a few hours, I said with a low bow. It may be that only, or it may be a few weeks. It was very unlucky his speaking to me just now as he did. Do you now know me? I assured her I did not. You shall know me, she said, but not at present. We are older and better friends than perhaps you suspect. I cannot yet declare myself. I shall in three weeks pass your beautiful schloss, about which I have been making enquiries. I shall then look in upon you for an hour or two, and renew a friendship which I never think of without a thousand pleasant recollections. 
This moment a piece of news has reached me like a thunderbolt. I must set out now, and travel by a devious route, nearly a hundred miles, with all the dispatch that I can possibly make. My perplexities multiply. I am only deterred by the compulsory reserve I practice as to my name from making a very singular request of you. My poor child has not quite recovered her strength. Her horse fell with her, at a hunt which she had ridden out to witness. Her nerves have not yet recovered the shock, and our physician says that she must on no account exert herself for some time to come. We came here, in consequence, by very easy stages, hardly six leagues a day. I must now travel day and night on a mission of life and death, a mission the critical and momentous nature of which I shall be able to explain to you when we meet, as I hope we shall, in a few weeks, without the necessity of any concealment. She went on to make her petition, and it was in the tone of a person from whom such a request amounted to conferring, rather than seeking, a favor. This was only in manner, and, as it seemed, quite unconsciously. Then the terms in which it was expressed, nothing could be more deprecatory. It was simply that I would consent to take charge of her daughter during her absence. This was, all things considered, a strange, not to say an audacious, request. She in some sort disarmed me, by stating and admitting everything that could be urged against it, and throwing herself entirely upon my chivalry. At the same moment, by a fatality that seems to have predetermined all that happened, my poor child came to my side, and in an undertone besought me to invite her new friend, Milarka, to pay us a visit. She had just been sounding her, and thought, if her mamma would allow her, she would like it extremely. At another time I should have told her to wait a little, until at least we knew who they were. But I had not a moment to think in. The two ladies assailed me together, and, I must confess, the refined and beautiful face of the young lady, about which there was something extremely engaging, as well as the elegance and fire of high birth, determined me, and quite overpowered I submitted, and undertook too easily the care of the young lady whom her mother called Milarka. The countess beckoned to her daughter, who listened with grave attention while she told her, in general terms, how suddenly and peremptorily she had been summoned, and also of the arrangement she had made for her under my care, adding that I was one of her earliest and most valued friends. I made, of course, such speeches as the case seemed to call for, and found myself on reflection in a position which I did not half like. The gentleman in black returned, and very ceremoniously conducted the lady from the room. The demeanour of this gentleman was such as to impress me with the conviction that the countess was a lady of very much more importance than her modest title alone might have led me to assume. Her last charge to me was that no attempt was to be made to learn more about her than I might have already guessed, until her return. Our distinguished host, whose guest she was— knew her reasons. But here, she said, neither I nor my daughter could safely remain for more than a day. I removed my mask imprudently for a moment about an hour ago, and, too late, I fancied you saw me.
so I resolved to seek an opportunity of talking a little to you. Had I found out that you had seen me, I would have thrown myself on your high sense of honor to keep my secret some weeks. As it is, I am satisfied that you did not see me. But if you now suspect, or on reflection should suspect, who I am, I commit myself, in like manner, entirely to your honor. My daughter will observe the same secrecy, and I well know that you will, from time to time, remind her, lest she should thoughtlessly disclose it. She whispered a few words to her daughter, kissed her hurriedly twice, and went away, accompanied by the pale gentleman in black, and disappeared in the crowd. "'In the next room,' said Malarga, "'there is a window that looks upon the hall door. I should like to see the last of Mamma, and to kiss my hand to her.' We assented, of course, and accompanied her to the window. We looked out and saw a handsome old-fashioned carriage, with a troop of couriers and footmen. We saw the slim figure of the pale gentleman in black, as he held a thick velvet cloak, and placed it about her shoulders and threw the hood over her head. She nodded to him, and just touched his hand with hers. He bowed low repeatedly as the door closed, and the carriage began to move. "'She is gone,' said Malarka, with a sigh. She is gone, I repeated to myself, for the first time, in the hurried moments that had elapsed since my consent, reflecting upon the folly of my act. She did not look up, said the young lady, plaintively. The countess had taken off her mask, perhaps, and did not care to show her face, I said, and she could not know that she were in the window. She sighed and looked in my face. She was so beautiful that I relented. I was sorry I had for a moment repented of my hospitality, and I determined to make her amends for the unavowed churlishness of my reception. The young lady, replacing her mask, joined my ward in persuading me to return to the grounds, where the concert was soon to be renewed. We did so, and walked up and down the terrace that lies under the castle windows. Milarka became very intimate with us, and amused us with lively descriptions and stories of most of the great people whom we saw upon the terrace. I liked her more and more every minute. Her gossip, without being ill-natured, was extremely diverting to me, who had been so long out of the great world. I thought what life she would give to our sometimes lonely evenings at home. This ball was not over until the morning sun had almost reached the horizon. It pleased the Grand Duke to dance till then, so loyal people could not go away, or think of bed. We had just got through a crowded saloon, when my ward asked me what had become of Milarka. I thought she had been by her side, and she fancied she was by mine. The fact was, we had lost her. All my efforts to find her were in vain. I feared that she had mistaken, in the confusion of a momentary separation from us, other people for her new friends, and had possibly pursued and lost them in the extensive grounds which were thrown open to us. Now, in its full force, I recognized a new folly in my having undertaken the charge of a young lady without so much as knowing her name, 
and fettered as I was by promises, of the reasons for imposing which I knew nothing, I could not even point my inquiries by saying that the missing young lady was the daughter of the countess who had taken her departure in a few hours before. Morning broke. It was clear daylight before I gave up my search. It was not till near two o'clock next day that we heard anything of my missing charge. At about that time a servant knocked at my niece's door to say that he had been earnestly requested by a young lady, who appeared to be in great distress, to make out where she could find the General Baron Spielsdorf and the young lady his daughter, in whose charge she had been left by her mother. There could be no doubt, notwithstanding the slight inaccuracy, that our young friend had turned up, and so she had. Would to heaven we had lost her! She told my poor child a story to account for her having failed to recover us for so long. Very late, she said, she had got to the housekeeper's bedroom in despair of finding us, and had then fallen into a deep sleep, which, long as it was, had hardly sufficed to recruit her strength after the fatigues of the ball. That day, Milarka came home with us. I was only too happy, after all. To have secured so charming a companion for my dear girl. Chapter thirteen. The Woodman. There soon, however, appeared some drawbacks. In the first place, Milarka complained of extreme languor, the weakness that remained after her late illness, and she never emerged from her room till the afternoon was pretty far advanced. In the next place, it was accidentally discovered, although she always locked her door on the inside and never disturbed the key from its place till she admitted the maid to assist at her toilet, that she was undoubtedly sometimes absent from her room in the very early morning, and at various times later in the day, before she wished it to be understood that she was stirring. She was repeatedly seen from the windows of the Schloss, in the first faint gray of the morning, walking through the trees. In an easterly direction, and looking like a person in a trance. This convinced me that she walked in her sleep. But this hypothesis did not solve the puzzle. How did she pass out from her room, leaving the door locked on the inside? How did she escape from the house without unbarring door or window? In the midst of my perplexities, an anxiety of a far more urgent kind presented itself. My dear child began to lose her looks and health, and that in a manner so mysterious and even horrible that I became thoroughly frightened. She was at first visited by appalling dreams, then, as she fancied, by a spectre, sometimes resembling Milarka, sometimes in the shape of a beast, indistinctly seen walking round the foot of her bed from side to side. Lastly came sensations. One, not unpleasant, but very peculiar, she said, resembled the flow of an icy stream against her breast. At a later time, she felt something like a pair of large needles pierce her, a little below the throat, with a very sharp pain. A few nights after followed a gradual and convulsive sense of strangulation. Then came unconsciousness. I could hear distinctly every word the kind old general was saying. 
because by this time we were driving upon the short grass that spreads on either side of the road as you approach the roofless village, which had not shown the smoke of a chimney for more than half a century. You may guess how strangely I felt, as I heard my own symptoms so exactly described in those which had been experienced by the poor girl, who, but for the catastrophe which followed, would have been at that moment a visitor at my father's chateau. You may suppose, also, how I felt, as I heard him detail habits and mysterious peculiarities, which were, in fact, those of our beautiful guest, Carmilla. A vista opened in the forest. We were on a sudden under the chimneys and gables of the ruined village, and the towers and battlements of the dismantled castle, round which gigantic trees are grouped, overhung us from a slight eminence. In a frightened dream I got down from the carriage, and in silence, for we had each abundant matter for thinking, we soon mounted the ascent, and were among the spacious chambers, winding stairs, and dark corridors of the castle. "'And this was once the palatial residence of the Karnsteins,' said the old general at length, as from a great window he looked out across the village, and saw the wide, undulating expanse of forest. "'It was a bad family, and here its blood-stained annals were written,' he continued. "'It is hard that they should, after death, continue to plague the human race with their atrocious lusts. "'That is the chapel of the Karnsteins, down there.' He pointed down to the grey walls of the Gothic building partly visible through the foliage, a little way down the steep. "'And I hear the axe of a woodman,' he added, "'busy among the trees that surround it. "'He possibly may give us the information of which I am in search, "'and point out the grave of Mercalla, Countess of Karnstein. "'These rustics preserve the local traditions of great families,' whose stories die out among the rich and titled so soon as the families themselves become extinct. "'We have a portrait, at home, of Mercalla, the Countess Karnstein. "'Should you like to see it?' asked my father. "'Time enough, dear friend,' replied the general. "'I believe that I have seen the original, "'and one motive which has led me to you earlier than I first intended,' was to explore the chapel which we are now approaching. "'What? See the Countess Mercalla?' exclaimed my father. "'Why, she has been dead more than a century!' "'Not so dead as you fancy, I am told,' answered the general. "'I confess, General, you puzzle me utterly,' replied my father, looking at him. I fancied for a moment with the return of the suspicion I detected before— but although there was anger and detestation at times in the old general's manner, there was nothing flighty. "'There remains to me,' he said, as we passed under the heavy arch of the Gothic church, for its dimensions would have justified its being so styled, "'but one object which can interest me during the few years that remain to me on earth, and that is to wreck on her the vengeance which I thank God may still be accomplished by a mortal man. "'What vengeance can you mean?' asked my father, in increasing amazement. "'I mean to decapitate the monster,' he answered, with a fierce flush, 
and a stamp that echoed mournfully through the hollow ruin, and his clenched hand was at the same moment raised, as if it grasped the handle of an axe, while he shook it ferociously in the air. "'What?' exclaimed my father, more than ever bewildered. "'To strike her head off.' "'Cut her head off?' I, with a hatchet, with a spade, or with anything that can cleave through her murderous throat. You shall hear, he answered, trembling with rage. And hurrying forward, he said, That beam will answer for a seat. Your dear child is fatigued. Let her be seated, and I will, in a few sentences, close my dreadful story. The squared block of wood, which lay on the grass-grown pavement of the chapel, formed a bench on which I was very glad to seat myself, and in the meantime the general called to the woodman, who had been removing some boughs which leaned upon the old walls, and, axe in hand, the hardy old fellow stood before us. He could not tell us anything of these monuments, but there was an old man, he said, a ranger of this forest, at present sojourning in the house of the priest about two miles away, who could point out every monument of the old Karnstein family, and for a trifle he undertook to bring him back with him, if we would lend him one of our horses, in little more than half an hour. "'Have you been long employed about this forest?' asked my father of the old man. "'I have been a woodman here,' he answered in his patois, "'under the forester all my days. So has my father before me, and so on.' as many generations as I can count up. I could show you the very house in the village here in which my ancestors live. How came the village to be deserted? asked the general. It was troubled by revenants, sir. Several were tracked to their graves, there detected by the usual tests, and extinguished in the usual way, by decapitation, by the stake, and by burning, but not until many of the villagers were killed. "'But after all these proceedings according to law,' he continued, "'so many graves opened and so many vampires deprived of their horrible animation, "'the village was not relieved. "'But a Moravian nobleman, who happened to be travelling this way, "'heard how matters were, and being skilled, as many people are in his country, "'in such affairs he offered to deliver the village from its tormentor. "'He did so thus. "'There being a bright moon that night,' He ascended, shortly after sunset, the towers of the chapel here, from whence he could distinctly see the churchyard beneath him. You can see it from that window. From this point he watched until he saw the vampire come out of his grave, and place near it the linen clothes in which he had been folded, and then glide away towards the village to plague its inhabitants. The stranger, having seen all this, came down from the steeple, took the linen wrappings of the vampire, and carried them up to the top of the tower, which he again mounted. When the vampire returned from his prowlings and missed his clothes, he cried furiously to the Moravian, whom he saw at the summit of the tower, and who, in reply, beckoned him to ascend and take them. Whereupon the vampire, accepting his invitation, began to climb the steeple, and so soon as he had reached the battlements, the Moravian, with a stroke of his sword, clove his skull in twain, hurling him down to the churchyard, Whither, descending by the winding stairs, the stranger followed and cut his head off, and next day delivered it and the body to the villagers, who duly impaled and burnt them. 
This Moravian nobleman had authority from the then head of the family to remove the tomb of Mercalla, Countess Karnstein, which he did effectually, so that in a little while its site was quite forgotten. Can you point out where it stood? asked the general eagerly. The forester shook his head and smiled. Not a soul living can tell you that now, he said. Besides, they say her body was removed, but no one is sure of that either. Having thus spoken, as time pressed, he dropped his axe and departed, leaving us to hear the remainder of the general's strange story. Chapter 14 The Meeting My beloved child, he resumed, was now growing rapidly worse. The physician who attended her had failed to produce the slightest impression on her disease, for such I then supposed it to be. He saw my alarm, and suggested a consultation. I called in an abler physician from Graz. Several days elapsed before he arrived. He was a good and pious as well as a learned man. Having seen my poor ward together— they withdrew to my library to confer and discuss. I, from the adjoining room, where I awaited their summons, heard these two gentlemen's voices raised in something sharper than a strictly philosophical discussion. I knocked at the door and entered. I found the old physician from Graz maintaining his theory. His rival was combating it with undisguised ridicule, accompanied with bursts of laughter. This unseemly manifestation subsided— and the altercation ended on my entrance. "'Sir,' said my first physician, "'my learned brother seems to think that you want a conjurer and not a doctor.' "'Pardon me,' said the old physician from Graz, looking displeased. "'I shall state my own view of the case in my own way another time. "'I grieve, Monsieur le Général, that by my skill and science I can be of no use.' Before I go, I shall do myself the honor to suggest something to you. He seemed thoughtful, and sat down at a table and began to write. Profoundly disappointed, I made my bow, and as I turned to go, the other doctor pointed over his shoulder to his companion, who was writing, and then, with a shrug, significantly touched his forehead. This consultation, then, left me precisely where I was— I walked out into the grounds, all but distracted. The doctor from Graz in ten or fifteen minutes overtook me. He apologized for having followed me, but said that he could not conscientiously take his leave without a few words more. He told me that he could not be mistaken. No natural disease exhibited the same symptoms, and that death was already very near. There remained, however, a day, or possibly two, of life. If the fatal seizure were at once arrested— with great care and skill her strength might possibly return, but all hung now upon the confines of the irrevocable. One more assault might extinguish the last spark of vitality, which is, every moment, ready to die. "'And what is the nature of the seizure you speak of?' I entreated. "'I have stated all fully in this note.' which I place in your hands upon the distinct condition that you send for the nearest clergyman, and open my letter in his presence, and on no account read it till he is with you. You would despise it else, and it is a matter of life and death. Should the priest fail you, then, 
Indeed, you may read it. He asked me, before taking his leave finally, whether I would wish to see a man curiously learned upon the very subject, which, after I had read his letter, would probably interest me above all others, and he urged me earnestly to invite him to visit him there, and so took his leave. The ecclesiastic was absent, and I read the letter by myself. At another time or in another case it might have excited my ridicule. But into what quackeries will not people rush for a last chance, where all accustomed means have failed, and the life of a beloved object is at stake? Nothing, you will say, could be more absurd than the learned man's letter. It was monstrous enough to have consigned him to a madhouse. He said that the patient was suffering from the visits of a vampire. The punctures which she described as having occurred near the throat were, he insisted, the insertion of those two long, thin, and sharp teeth, which, it is well known, are peculiar to vampires, and there could be no doubt, he added, as to the well-defined presence of the small, livid mark, which all concurred in describing as that induced by the demon's lips, and every symptom described by the sufferer was in exact conformity with those recorded in every case of a similar visitation." Being myself wholly sceptical as to the existence of any such portent as the vampire, the supernatural theory of the good doctor furnished, in my opinion, but another instance of learning and intelligence oddly associated with some one hallucination. I was so miserable, however, that rather than try nothing, I acted upon the instructions of the letter. I concealed myself in the dark dressing-room that opened upon the poor patient's room, in which a candle was burning, and watched there till she was fast asleep. I stood at the door, peeping through the small crevice, my sword laid on the table beside me as my directions prescribed, until a little after one I saw a large black object, very ill-defined, crawl, as it seemed to me, over the foot of the bed, and swiftly spread itself up to the poor girl's throat, where it swelled, in a moment, into a great palpitating mass. For a few moments I had stood petrified. I now sprang forward with my sword in my hand. The black creature suddenly contracted towards the foot of the bed, glided over it, and standing on the floor about a yard below the foot of the bed, with a glare of skulking ferocity and horror fixed on me, I saw Milarka. Speculating I know not what, I struck at her instantly with my sword, but I saw her standing near the door, unscathed. Horrified, I pursued and struck again. She was gone, and my sword flew to shivers against the door. I can't describe to you all that passed on that horrible night. The whole house was up and stirring. The spectre Malarca was gone, but her victim was sinking fast, and before the morning dawned, she died. The old general was agitated. We did not speak to him. My father walked to some little distance, and began reading the inscriptions on the tombstones, and thus occupied he strolled into the door of a side-chapel to prosecute his researches. The general leaned against the wall, dried his eyes, and sighed heavily. I was relieved on hearing the voices of Carmilla and Madame, who were at that moment approaching. The voices died away. In this solitude, having just listened to so strange a story, 
connected as it was with the great and titled dead, whose monuments were moldering among the dust and ivy around us, and every instant of which bore so awfully upon my own mysterious case. In this haunted spot, darkened by the towering foliage that rose on every side, dense and high above its noiseless walls, a horror began to steal over me, and my heart sank as I thought that my friends were, after all, not about to enter and disturb this triste and ominous scene. The old general's eyes were fixed on the ground, as he leaned with his hand upon the basement of a shattered monument. Under a narrow, arched doorway, surmounted by one of those demonical grotesques in which the cynical and ghastly fancy of old Gothic carving delights, I saw very gladly the beautiful face and figure of Carmilla entering the shadowy chapel. I was just about to rise and speak, and nodded smiling in answer to her peculiarly engaging smile, when with a cry the old man by my side caught up the woodman's hatchet and started forward. On seeing him a brutalized change came over her features. It was an instantaneous and horrible transformation as she made a crouching step backwards. Before I could utter a scream, he struck at her with all his force, but she dived under his blow, and unscathed caught him in her tiny grasp by the wrist. He struggled for a moment to release his arm, but his hand opened, the axe fell to the ground, and the girl was gone. He staggered against the wall. His gray hair stood upon his head, and a moisture shone over his face as if he were at the point of death. The frightful scene had passed in a moment. The first thing I recollect after is Madame standing before me, and impatiently repeating again and again the question, Where is Mademoiselle Carmilla? I answered at length, I don't know. I can't tell. She went there. And I pointed to the door through which Madame had just entered, only a minute or two since. But I have been standing there, in the passage, ever since Mademoiselle Carmilla entered, and she did not return. She then began to call, Carmilla, through every door and passage and from the windows, but no answer came. She called herself Carmilla, asked the general, still agitated. Carmilla, yes, I answered. Aye, he said, that is Milarca. That is the same person who long ago was called Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. Depart from this accursed ground, my poor child, as quickly as you can. Drive to the clergyman's house and stay there till we come. Be gone! May you never behold Carmilla more. You will not find her here. Chapter 15 Ordeal and Execution As he spoke, one of the strangest-looking men I ever beheld entered the chapel at the door through which Carmilla had made her entrance and her exit. He was tall, narrow-chested, stooping, with high shoulders and dressed in black. His face was brown and dried in with deep furrows. He wore an oddly-shaped hat with a broad leaf. His hair, long and grizzled, hung on his shoulders. He wore a pair of gold spectacles and walked slowly with an odd, shambling gait, with his face sometimes turned up to the sky, and sometimes bowed down towards the ground, seemed to wear a perpetual smile. 
his long, thin arms were swinging, and his lank hands, in old black gloves ever so much too wide for them, waving and gesticulating in utter abstraction. "'The very man!' exclaimed the general, advancing with manifest delight. "'My dear Baron, how happy I am to see you! I had no hope of meeting you so soon!' He signed to my father, who had by this time returned, and leading the fantastic old gentleman, whom he called the Baron, to meet him. He introduced him formally, and they at once entered into earnest conversation. The stranger took a roll of paper from his pocket, and spread it on the worn surface of a tomb that stood by. He had a pencil-case in his fingers, with which he traced imaginary lines from point to point on the paper, which from their often glancing from it together at certain points of the building, I concluded to be a plan of the chapel. He accompanied what I may term his lecture, with occasional readings from a dirty little book, whose yellow leaves were closely written over. They sauntered together down the side aisle, opposite to the spot where I was standing, conversing as they went. Then they began measuring distances by paces, and finally they all stood together, facing a piece of the side wall, which they began to examine with great minuteness, pulling off the ivy that clung over it, and wrapping the plaster with the ends of their sticks, scraping here and knocking there. At length they ascertained the existence of a broad marble tablet, with letters carved in relief upon it. With the assistance of the woodman, who soon returned, a monumental inscription and carved escutcheon were disclosed. They proved to be those of the long-lost monument of Mercalla, Countess Karnstein. The old general, though not, I fear, given to the praying mood, raised his hands and eyes to heaven in mute thanksgiving for some moments. "'Tomorrow,' I heard him say, "'the commissioner will be here, and the inquisition will be held according to law.' Then turning to the old man with the gold spectacles, whom I have described, he shook him warmly by both hands and said, "'Baron, how can I thank you?' How can we all thank you? You will have delivered this region from a plague that has scourged its inhabitants for more than a century. The horrible enemy, thank God, is at last tracked. My father led the stranger aside, and the general followed. I know that he had led them out of hearing, that he might relate my case, and I saw them glance often quickly at me as the discussion proceeded. My father came to me, kissed me again and again, and leading me from the chapel, said, It is time to return, but before we go home, we must add to our party the good priest, who lives but a little way from this, and persuade him to accompany us to the Schloss. In this quest we were successful, and I was glad, being unspeakably fatigued when we reached home. But my satisfaction was changed to dismay on discovering that there were no tidings of Carmilla. Of the scene that had occurred in the ruined chapel, no explanation was offered to me, and it was clear that it was a secret which my father for the present determined to keep from me. The sinister absence of Carmilla made the remembrance of the scene more horrible to me. The arrangements for the night were singular. Two servants and Madame were to sit up in my room that night, and the ecclesiastic with my father kept watch in the adjoining dressing-room. 
The priest had performed certain solemn rites that night, the purport of which I did not understand any more than I comprehended the reason of this extraordinary precaution taken for my safety during sleep. I saw all clearly a few days later. The disappearance of Carmilla was followed by the discontinuance of my nightly sufferings. You have heard, no doubt, of the appalling superstition that prevails in upper and lower Styria, in Moravia, Silesia, in Turkish Serbia, in Poland, even in Russia, the superstition, so we must call it, of the vampire. If human testimony, taken with every care and solemnity, judicially, before commissions innumerable, each consisting of many members, all chosen for integrity and intelligence, and constituting reports more voluminous perhaps than exist upon any one other class of cases, is worth anything, it is difficult to deny, or even to doubt, the existence of such a phenomenon as the vampire. For my part, I have heard no theory by which to explain what I myself have witnessed and experienced, other than that supplied by the ancient and well-attested belief of the country. The next day the formal proceedings took place in the chapel of Karnstein. The grave of the Countess Mercalla was opened, and the general and my father recognized each his perfidious and beautiful guest in the face now disclosed to view. The features— though a hundred and fifty years had passed since her funeral, were tinted with the warmth of life. Her eyes were open. No cadaverous smell exhaled from the coffin. The two medical men, one officially present, the other on the part of the promoter of the inquiry, attested the marvelous fact that there was a faint but appreciable respiration and a corresponding action of the heart. The limbs were perfectly flexible, the flesh elastic, and the leaden coffin floated with blood, in which to a depth of seven inches the body lay immersed. Here, then, were all the admitted signs and proofs of vampirism. The body, therefore, in accordance with the ancient practice, was raised, and a sharp stake driven through the heart of the vampire, who uttered a piercing shriek at the moment, in all respects such as might escape from a living person in the last agony. Then the head was struck off, and a torrent of blood flowed from the severed neck. The body and head was next placed on a pile of wood, and reduced to ashes, which were thrown upon the river and borne away. And that territory has never since been plagued by the visits of a vampire. My father has a copy of the report of the Imperial Commission— with the signatures of all who were present at these proceedings, attached in verification of the statement. It is from this official paper that I have summarized my account of this last shocking scene. Chapter 16 Conclusion I write all this, you suppose, with composure, but far from it. I cannot think of it without agitation. Nothing but your earnest desire, so repeatedly expressed, could have induced me to sit down to a task that has unstrung my nerves for months to come, and reinduced a shadow of the unspeakable horror which years after my deliverance continued to make my days and nights dreadful, and solitude insupportably terrific. 
Let me add a word or two about that quaint Baron Vordenberg, to whose curious lore we were indebted for the discovery of the Countess Mercalla's grave. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where, living upon a mere pittance, which was all that remained to him of the once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria, he devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvelously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers' ends all the great and little works upon the subject. Magia Postuma, Phlegon de Mirabilibus, Augustinus de Cura Promortuus, Philosophicae et Christianae Cogitationes de Vampiris, by John Christopher Herrenberg, and a thousand others, among which I remember only a few of those which he lent to my father. He had a voluminous digest of all the judicial cases, from which he had extracted a system of principles that appear to govern, some always and others occasionally only, the condition of the vampire. I may mention, in passing, that the deadly pallor attributed to that sort of revenance is a mere melodramatic fiction. They present in the grave, and when they show themselves in human society, the appearance of healthy life. When disclosed to light in their coffins, they exhibit all the symptoms that are enumerated as those which proved the vampire life of the long-dead Countess Karnstein. How they escape from their graves, and return to them for certain hours every day, without displacing the clay or leaving any trace of disturbance in the state of the coffin or the cerements, has always been admitted to be utterly inexplicable. The amphibious existence of the vampire is sustained by daily renewed slumber in the grave. Its horrible lust for living blood supplies the vigor of its waking existence. The vampire is prone to be fascinated with an engrossing vehemence, resembling the passion of love, by particular persons. In pursuit of these, it will exercise inexhaustible patience and stratagem, for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist until it has satiated its passion, and drained the very life of its coveted victim. But it will, in these cases, husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure, and heighten it by the gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases, it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence, and strangles and exhausts, often at a single feast. The vampire is, apparently, subject in certain situations to special conditions. In the particular instance of which I have given you a relation, Mercala seemed to be limited to a name, which, if not her real one, should at least reproduce, without the omission or addition of a single letter, those, as we say, anagrammatically, which compose it. Carmilla did this. So did Milarca. My father related to the Baron Vordenberg, who remained with us for two or three weeks after the expulsion of Carmilla, the story about the Moravian nobleman and the vampire at Karnstein Churchyard, and then he asked the Baron how he had discovered the exact position of the long-concealed tomb of the Countess Mercala. The Baron's grotesque features puckered up into a mysterious smile. 
He looked down, still smiling on his worn spectacle case and fumbled with it. Then, looking up, he said, I have many journals, and other papers, written by that remarkable man. The most curious among them is one treating of the visit of which you speak, to Karnstein. The tradition, of course, discolors and distorts a little. He might have been termed a Moravian nobleman, for he had changed his abode to that territory, and was, besides, a noble. But he was, in truth, a native of Upper Styria. It is enough to say that in very early youth he had been a passionate and favored lover of the beautiful Mercala, Countess Karnstein. Her early death plunged him into inconsolable grief. It is the nature of vampires to increase and multiply, but according to an ascertained and ghostly law. Assume at starting a territory perfectly free from that pest. How does it begin, and how does it multiply itself? I will tell you. A person, more or less wicked, puts an end to himself. A suicide under certain circumstances becomes a vampire. That specter visits living people and their slumbers. They die, and almost invariably, in the grave, develop into vampires. This happened in the case of the beautiful Mercala, who was haunted by one of those demons. My ancestor, Vordenberg, whose title I still bear, soon discovered this, and in the course of the studies to which he devoted himself, learned a great deal more. Among other things, he concluded that suspicion of vampirism would probably fall, sooner or later, upon the dead countess, who in life had been his idol. He conceived a horror, be she what she might, of her remains being profaned by the outrage of a posthumous execution. He has left a curious paper to prove that the vampire, on its expulsion from its amphibious existence, is projected into a far more horrible life and he resolved to save his once-beloved Mercala from this. He adopted the stratagem of a journey here, a pretended removal of her remains, and a real obliteration of her monument. When age had stolen upon him, and from the veil of years, he looked back on the scenes he was leaving, he considered, in a different spirit, what he had done, and a horror took possession of him. He made the tracings and notes which have guided me to the very spot, and drew up a confession of the deception that he had practiced. If he had intended any further action in this matter, death prevented him, and the hand of a remote descendant has, too late for many, directed the pursuit to the lair of the beast. We talked a little more, and among other things he said was this. One sign of the vampire is the power of the hand. The slender hand of Mercala closed like a vice of steel on the general's wrist when he raised the hatchet to strike. But its power is not confined to its grasp. It leaves a numbness in the limb it seizes, which is slowly, if ever, recovered from. The following spring my father took me on a tour through Italy. We remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and to this hour the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations. Sometimes the playful, languid, beautiful girl, sometimes the writhing fiend I saw in the ruined church.
and often from a reverie I have started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing-room door. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moo. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. And we're going to talk about uh, the 1871-1872 gothic novella Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Le Fenu. Usually, I, I've seen it mostly published as Sheridan Le Fenu, sometimes J. Sheridan Le Fenu. Um, but this is the first story I've read by him, and I will definitely read more because I thought this was really terrific. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it was your first narrated story for LibriVox, is that right? It was. Uh, it was the first solo I did for LibriVox, and that was a while ago now. I think that was 2007. Yeah. Um, and I also, uh, I've, I read this story, I don't remember how old I was, but I was pretty young because my parents had a collection of Lefanu's stories on their bookshelves, and I actually have it. It's in my hand right now. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's an old, uh, old collection, and um, this was definitely my favorite story from that collection. I, I was really obsessed with vampires and werewolves and ghosts and all of that stuff, and so I was super into Carmilla as a probably like pre-adolescent kid, which I don't know what that says about me, but... Uh, it says good things, I think. <laughs> I I would totally have loved to have read this as a kid because it's. I think it's even like I I don't remember reading Dracula. I must have read it at some point um, because I know everything about it. Uh, I've seen all the movies, of course, but I even know how you know the structure works and all that stuff. It's just been so many years. I I have a feeling whatever version I read was, you know, not exactly the original, right. but um. I like this way better than Dracula. Yeah, I tend to prefer this one too. I mean, I think it's it's a novella and not a novel, which is in its favor for mm -hmm. sure. But Dracula, I mean, I love Dracula, but it's so it's so obsessed with its own structure mm. and it's so Victorian in that way. I mean, it's it's like it's it's composed of letters and diary entries and you know part of it is dr seward is supposed to be speaking into his um newfangled dictaphone and it's you know and so it's so interested in like how you know the story gets told that in some ways i feel like it gets bogged down the the momentum of the story gets bogged down in the manner of its telling i i think you're right this this uh when it was originally published in uh the dark blue magazine didn't have the little tiny framing device it has at the beginning oh really i didn't know that yeah um it's not there so um uh, the addition of that uh, it doesn't really detract from it at all but it makes it a part of a series of dr hasalius stories which I've not read any of the others, but I think everything in the in the book called In a Glass Darkly, like which came out the year, you know that the in 1872, the same year that the final serialization right. came out, um, makes them all part of you know sort of a continuous story of this occult literature, no occult investigator, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so this is his document. Now the only thing that I think that that really adds that's interesting. Uh, it's it's barely a page that introduction is that it says that he tried to contact the writer yeah. that is Laura um, and 
he couldn't because she's dead. Right. Um, which I think is interesting given the ending. Yes. Which, which, uh, <clears throat> I think it does enrich it in the way a nice framing story does. I, I totally agree. I, I would actually be sad to not have that little prologue in there. And it's, um, it's intriguing too because, uh, it's like, you know, Dr. Hesalius is in the prologue, but he's not writing the prologue. Right. And yeah, so, I think we're supposed to think uh, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu is writing the, right. the prologue. And Hesalius is like giving him a stack of papers or books or something. Right. And so it's, it's you know, also very common kind of Victorian idea that, that Dracula also trades on that, you know, We've do- we have this documented, you know, we, we, this is a true story, we, we have the papers to prove it, you know. Um, and so the, it's a kind of authenticating prologue, mm-hmm. you know, that we're supposed to believe in it because it's, you know, Dr. Hesalius is, is, has attached his note, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, Lofanu is kind of um, adding an extra layer of authentication to it. But, but yeah, I love that it's, you know, he tried to contact her and she had died and so when you get to the end of the story and you think oh she's safe it's all over mm-hmm. and you think like mm, maybe not you know not with that ending no not with the, those words you know and sometimes i hear the what i think is the sound of carmilla's feet or yes, whatever the light step of carmilla at the drawing room door that's the ending right. and it's just ooh, it's so it's so chilling and so you think well we know that Laura is writing this, I think, 10 years after. Eight, eight years, I think. Eight years, that. okay. Yeah. And so, you know, she's in her 20s. We don't really know anything about her life at this point. But, uh, you know, she survived at least a bit after this whole thing. But, mm-hmm. we, you know, not, not that much longer because we know from the prologue that she's, that she's dead. So The only... Uh I couldn't find any, you know, evidence within the story of, as to when it's actually set. Obviously, if if she was supposed to be alive in 1871 or 1872, when it, it couldn't have been, you know, 300 years ago. Yeah. Although the the mansion itself is, or the castle itself is furnished in a style from 300 years before whatever right. setting it's in, uh, there was there was I think a mention of a a fete. Uh, F-E-T-E, mm-hmm. the husband. Yeah. Uh, for a Duke Charles. I think it was Duke Charles, and I was looking it up, and uh, there is a sort of a, you know, a German or uh, Austrian Grand Duke. Yeah, it was a Grand Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that, by the time the story was, you know, published, that guy had been dead for you know, at least 50 years. I see. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's one adaptation that has, um, it's, it's an audio, uh, radio drama from the seventies that has it narrated from her being, uh, an elderly woman mm-hmm. talking about her youth. I'm not sure what the point of that was, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like that we have what is essentially a diary or, uh, her her recounting of it seems to be written for the public though, right? She's saying, "My dear reader, um, it's like she knows who her audience is back in England." Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's very curious as to the way it's set that way. But she, I want to say she's such a good writer. Um, <laughs> I love the way the, the setting is described. Right at the beginning, we get the picture of the castle. The drawbridge was never raised in her time there. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem, right? Right. Is they never shut out anybody because they're so desperate to meet people. Right, because they're so um, secluded. You know, she says... Uh, you know, the nearest inhabited village is far away. Um, 20 leagues or something, yeah. Yeah, and she said the nearest inhabited village because there's the ruined uh, village where the Karnsteins lived. That's only three miles away. So they're, they're the closest, you know, is this and deserted village. And then is, is beyond <laughs> that even. Right, exactly. There's there's a, a further description of the of their castle as having white lilies uh, floating in the in the um, moat mm-hmm. and swans on the <laughs> on, you know rolling through the moat and it's stocked with perch right which is a white fish <laughs> <laughs> um, the idea here is I think you know innocence 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 and you know all those beautiful things and then the violation of right uh, I, it, it, in we were talking before the podcast about framing stories i think that there's another kind of thing going on in here too which is the um story within the story where we get the story of spielsdorf in the letter right later on we get that as a full-blown description of of what actually happened and how his his not daughter but his uh, niece died. Right. The Mercala was it who came? Or I Malarca? think it's, it's Mercala. Malarca. Malarca. Okay. Malarca and her mother, quote unquote mother, uh, met uh, Spielsdorf at a uh, yeah I think it was a fete. Right. Um, some masked ball, and in. So doing, they did the exact same thing as they do to uh, to Laura and her father. Right. Right. They they set it up so that the daughter has to be left with these strangers under a specific set of rules, which is you're not allowed to ask where we're from or who we are. Right. And uh, the mother always has to go away for some urgent business. Right. Yep. It's a scam. <laughs> it's a vampire scam. Yeah. And I always wondered if um, the mother character did some kind of, you know, glamour or something on the father. Cause it seems that way. She knows she knows him from long ago, right? Well, that's what she says. Well, but uh, she didn't she also <laughs> like, have um, knowledge of him from... Like, he, he wanted to know who she was. He says, take off your mask. Who are you? The reason she didn't take off her mask is because he would have recognized her. It seems like they're almost a family of vampires. Right. Do we get the sense that she is uh, not just, you know, working for Carmilla, but actually it, it's uh, that the Karnsteins are, you know, they've taken the show on the road now. That, like, right. The castle's ruined. <laughs> In both cases, I think the mother kind of pulls the father aside, right? You know, and, mm. and we, they don't know what's being said. The, mm-hmm. the daughter in each case doesn't know what's being said. Or at least I remember that with um, Carmilla. She kind of pulls Laura's father aside and Laura doesn't mm. know what she's 
saying to him. Um, and so, you know, you got to wonder, is she kind of at least, I don't know what the, you know, 19th century term would be. Is she glamoring him mm-hmm. into accepting these uh, kind of ridiculous conditions? It's it, it's curious because uh, it, they're sort of set up for it, right? They Because she's saying how lonely she is and the father knows she's lonely. And also the father was always giving into her whim, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things she said her, about herself as a child is, you know, she, she was always, uh, she got her way with her dad no matter what. Um, and, and because she was so lonely there, uh, she, he was always looking for companions for her to hang out with. Right. Um, it's, it's the perfect, it's the perfect, uh, setup because, you know, they're a rich uh, noble family or semi-rich noble family who, uh, you know, are lonely and here's a playmate. Let's run off. What's interesting is at the end, uh, Le Fanu gives us a, and I guess Laura indirectly, along with some scholarly people in the actual story, give us a explanation as to why the vampires don't always just immediately suck everybody dry. Right. Right. They, they have a sort of a, every once in a while they, they find someone who they want, who want them to fall in love with. Right. So that I guess the drinking is the sweeter. Right. I don't know. Well, you do know that, um, the reader knows that car or at least figures out that Carmilla has been preying on village girls Mm -hmm. The whole time that she's kind of courting Laura. So we know that people are dying in the village. Um, And you you get the sense that Carmilla is, you know, is feeding the whole time that she's there. But that she's kind of romancing Laura. You know, that it's Mm -hmm. a different relationship. It's uh, similar. There's a, I mean, what's what's interesting here is that, I know that there there is another previous uh, English piece of literature on this. There's Varney the Vampire, but mm. that one uh, seems, uh, from what I've read about it, it's, it's a huge, long serial. Um, it seems wildly more inconsistent than this one, which is, uh, it's sort of got a, it's got most of the trappings of what we think of as modern vampires uh, in movies and other literature. Right. And so, so the things that are uh, in here that are left out of of modern literature, like the name uh, uh, anagrams, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, there's one blue, the blue mark mm-hmm. uh, instead of the two fanged mark, right? Um, is inter- is interesting. But one of the things that I think is consistent, and especially from this to to the more modern uh, retellings of vampire stories is that there is this sort of uh, obsession with um, not just eating the person, but trying to get somebody to fall in love with you because you're so lonely and uh, you want a companion. Yeah. I guess in that uh, there's a a great speech with um, when Carmilla uh, asks, Laura, uh, uh, why are you afraid of death or something like that? Mm-hmm. And and Carmilla says, you're going to die into me. Yeah. <clears throat> and, 
and it was like, oh, that's wonderfully creepy. Yeah. And Laura just doesn't react to that at all. And we as the readers are like, wait, yeah. that doesn't sound right. Yeah, if somebody um, says, I live in your warm life and you will die sweetly into mine, you probably yeah. would want to say something in response to that. But, I mean, Laura's so young, she doesn't know I guess. what's going on. I think she's also mesmerized to a certain degree. Um, and also, remember, she's been stalked in a sense, by Carmilla since she was six. Um, totally. You know, there's that in the very very first chapter, um, Carmilla, she recalls this early fright where Carmilla visits her. Mm-hmm. And um, she's enchanted by Carmilla's beauty, even at that point, because Carmilla appears to her, of course, looking like an adult woman, um, the way that she appears when they encounter each other again. Mm-hmm. But Laura's only six. And so she's kind of en- enchanted by this pretty lady that appears to her and um, is so soothed by her that you know, she's able to go to sleep again and uh, um, with Carmilla beside her. Uh, and then, of course, she feels the, the punctures in her neck and, and then she wakes up. Yeah, it is multiple punctures. Now, when, when the doctor is, is punctures, you know, it's she she feels two she says needles right right um a sharp you know sense of needles or something mm-hmm. but when the doctor looks at her and says uh I, now your father's going to pull down your dress just a little bit yeah have a look at where the pain comes from and the cold comes from and she's like what is it and the doctor says oh it's just a blue spot mm-hmm. uh What's interesting is in one of the adaptations uh, of the, in the comic book, the doctor says it's just a blue spot. And then the reader is seeing uh, in the adaptation the two puncture marks. Oh, okay. Uh, two red puncture marks, right? Hmm. And it's like the blue spot is what they're saying to her. Okay. Because they're trying to shield her. And I think quite there's a, quite a lot of shielding her, uh, you know, where the doctor and the and the father go off to confer, and then they, we're going to go to Karnstein now, but uh, you just hang back a little bit, girl. Right, right. They're they're really trying to shield her from the horrible reality. You know, what? what's wrong with me, doctor? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be okay? She says, you're going to be fine. Don't you worry. <laughs> what ailment do I have, doctor? <clears throat> um, they're really hiding from her the horror of it, I guess, because they're afraid of how she'll react. Right. I think, you know, there's a lot of that in Dracula too. And it's Mm. interesting because in Dracula, it actually turns out to be incredibly um, stupid on the part of the men to try and shield Mina in particular. You know, they, they, they think, Oh, she's just a woman. She's innocent. Mm. Like she's virtuous. We have to protect her. And in fact, that's incredibly dumb because when they leave her behind, to go off and do their stalking of mm-hmm. the vampire, um, that's exactly when he gets gets her, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, I think, you know, something that both novels show us is that, you know, in fact, the, the female characters are, are far more capable and, and smarter than the male characters give them credit for. I think both authors are kind of showing us that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Laura's definitely capable of understanding what's going on. It's just, you're right that, you know, the men in her life are kind of shielding her from it. Uh, maybe because she's, she's youthful and because 
uh, you know, they know where, uh, you know, the Spielstorf seems, he, he doesn't seem to care that much. He, he, he's more focused on chopping that head off. Yeah. But, um, you know, he's also, when he finds out that Carmilla is Mercala, or I guess when, you know, they reveal the name of Carmilla. Right. Um, and then the same sort of thing's been happening there. He's like, okay, we're going to get this done right now. This is all that's left in my life. Right. That, um, that's a, it, it really, it's funny because that's the point when we actually get all the action, but we're also getting the backstory. Right. All filled in for us. Yeah. And I, I love how much of this book is just about the setting and sort of, there's a lot of scenes where you don't, actually go outside we just hear that oh i pressed her on this issue and i asked her about that and then we'll go outside and see you know oh there was a funeral there right and uh carmilla is suddenly angry about the singing yeah right? yeah and she says what makes you think that i'm the same religion as you right it's like wow what kind of religion is she uh belonging to here <laughs> um it's yeah. interesting that the cross, you know, doesn't come up as a, a symbol of power here. Uh, it, that's in Dracula, isn't it? The cross, yes, definitely. It's one of their weapons, along with the mm. holy water, and that doesn't figure in really here. Um, no, not really. Yeah, but it's sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say just to follow up on your your. Uh, comment about the settings in this novel. It's really well done. Not only the um, the sort of the way that he contrasts the the exterior with the interior, but then how kind of complicated the layering of the imagery is to do mm-hmm. with the interior. You know, I'm thinking, for example, of when um, <clears throat> Carmilla is discovered to have is kind of escaped from the castle and nobody can figure out where she is or how she got mm-hmm. out. Um, and, you know, obviously the reader knows, but the but the characters don't. And so there's all these kind of interesting um images to do with kind of enclosure, you know, like mm-hmm. there's sort of doors within doors and chambers within chambers. And, you know, this kind of idea that um, Carmilla can sort of transcend all of these enclosures, um, even though, of course, as a vampire, she has to then retreat to the enclosure of, of the coffin and the tomb. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's it's so well done the way LaFanu gives us all of those um you know, kind of uh, motifs of like enclosure, but then the way that the vampire can kind of both transcend, but is also kind of confined by those enclosures. Um, and to me, that feels very purposeful, not only because this is a vampire story, but because it's a story about female vampires in particular. So, um, you know, especially from a Victorian context, the idea that, you know, women in the Victorian period were so strongly associated with, you know, the interior and the domestic space, you know, they're mm-hmm. supposed to be confined to the house. And, you know, that was their proper sphere, you know, men, men were associated with the public sphere. So Carmilla, because she can, can kind of escape from and transcend that, you know, enclosure or confinement is, uh, is a really kind of um, transgressive, extra transgressive female for the time in which she's oh, totally. Yeah. I want I want to talk about that uh, with regard to the story that Spieldorf tells. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, I, I, I what you're telling me totally fits with some curious little thing that happens. 
when when the mountebank, the peddler, mm-hmm. the hunchback peddler comes uh, to the castle, uh, w- up to the schlosh, 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 <laughs> and he says, uh, or she's, uh, Laura says that he comes, he sees her him twice a year or so, um, and he's come again, and he's got all these straps with all these tools on it. He announces all his uh, capabilities that he's able to do this and he's able to do that. There's, he's got a little dog which refuses to cross the drawbridge. Right. Um, and uh, he offers the, the two ladies amulets for protections against the umpire, right? Or umpire, mm-hmm. which is the Polish word for vampire. Um, then he he talks about them uh, uh, about how the young lady has a very sharp tooth like a fish, and that he can fix that. He has all the tools, right? <laughs> um, which is uh, uh, something Carmilla freaks out about. Um, and I I, I want to talk more about this scene. But what is most interesting to me is that in the story, it, they're doing this through a window. Right. He's outside. They're inside. They're buying amulets through the window. Right. Like, it's almost like they're not allowed to go outside and that this guy's somebody that would be inappropriate to hang out with, but he can still do business with them. Right. Yeah. In this sort of weird situation. And they have been outside because they are outside when the funeral passes. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, it, it seems very... Um, predictable in some ways to me that they would do this transaction with the hunchback through the window. Yeah. Because they're, you know, then the window is a kind of interesting liminal space. You know, it's like they're kind of in, they're kind of out. Um, But yeah, as you say, he's not a, he's not a respectable figure. And so the fact that they're kind of protected in some ways by being at least in part in this kind of safe domestic sphere. But of course, Carmilla makes the domestic sphere unsafe you know that's one thing that she does like she invades the heart of that domestic space you know she can go anywhere she wants inside uh the home her reaction there is is you know this it's the same kind of reaction she has when she hears the the funeral song right right i don't care about uh peasants right right? and she's very happy with this guy and she wants to buy one of his his which is hilarious. Amulets against vampires. She buys one. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, no effect. Right. <laughs> but this half-crazed, uh, you know, uh, well, well-educated in at least uh, trickery and and juggling, perhaps or whatever it is, he's good at, um, can somehow half recognize her as a vampire. Yeah. No, I think he does. I think he sort of. Um in some ways kind of outs her, you know, and that's why she's angry. Um, and she threatens him pretty violently. My father would have had the wretch tied up to the mm-hmm. pump and flogged and burnt to the bones with the cattle brand. So yeah. it's, you know, she's warning him, I think, like, <laughs> you better shut your mouth. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Shut your mouth. I got business here. You can't scam me. That's right. She's the original scammer, so she knows when uh, she's being scammed. Um. I don't remember uh, if I don't think there's an adaptation that I've seen where they do that transaction through through a window. It's always, uh, you know, outside or mm-hmm. or it just eliminated completely. But it's among these little scenes like that with the the one with the the funeral and and, you know, you're piercing my ears. <laughs> um, 
those little scenes, they all add up. It's like a very clever recipe for this is dangerous. Get her out of that castle. Right. <clears throat> it's like a lot Absolutely. of the little scenes you get in Dracula as well. That I mean, Stoker was very influenced very by this, and you have like an analog with the hunchback and his amulets with uh, Dracula and Harker's shaving mirror. Mm-hmm. Right. Foul bauble, take that from my house. I don't have <laughs> vanity, it's because that would give him away with having no reflection. Right. right. I've forgotten it's, about that moment. That's a great little moment right there at the beginning. But uh, what's also so wonderful about you know the mirror there is. Is is it because he it will show he doesn't have a reflection? Which yes, it does. But he also doesn't want to. It's like that really great story by uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Merkheim, Merkheim, mm-hmm. that one um, about a guy who you know he's in there for his plan is to murder and steal, um, and, but he's really pretending to buy a Christmas present, and the, the store owner says, "Well, what about this?" This hand mirror, right? And he's like, "No, what a horrible idea for a gift!" <laughs> and you know, it's it's the description of that as is like, "Well, it'll show me what I am doing, right? It it'll be just the worse for having seen it, you know, as a reflected action. As a, I don't want to think about what I'm doing." Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. What do we think about Carmilla's motivations? Because uh, most of the time, I think she's just a really smart liar. She she's she's got it. She's done it enough so that she says she doesn't make up a story about oh we're we're from Romania and and we're uh, on a downtrodden path, but we're on our we're you know like they just say I can't tell you, mm-hmm. which is very clever. <clears throat> but she will lie. She's totally lying a lot of the time. She. Or you know, being deceptive um, in ways that look like lying. Right. But on the other hand, she tells a lot of truth. I think about you know how our families you know are related. Right. That's true. Yeah, and I think that <clears throat> what's also interesting is that Carmilla seems to proceed from this idea that. <clears throat> um, as a vampire, she doesn't say this outright, but she implies it, that she is natural or she is a product of nature. And Mm. so she doesn't necessarily, I think, believe that what she's doing is, is all that evil. Um, That, you know, she, she scoffs, for example, at um, Laura's father saying, you know, Oh, we're in God's hands. I mean, it's actually right below the the incident with the mountebank, um, and he's right. he's talking about the um, the disease that's going through the village, and he says we're in God's hands; nothing can happen without His permission. Um, he's made us all, and will take care of us. And Carmilla's answer is just totally just scoff at this. Mm-hmm. Um, all things proceed from nature, don't they? All things in the heaven and the earth and under the earth act and live as nature ordains. I think so. The father doesn't have an an response to this. He just kind of changes the subject. Yeah. And then she can, a little further down, she compares the girls to caterpillars while they live in the world to be finally Mm -hmm. butterflies when the summertime comes. But in the meantime, they're grubs and larvae, each with their peculiar propensities, necessities, and structure. So I feel like she's saying that, first of all, of course, God doesn't exist. 
um, mm-hmm. that to rely on him to take care of us is, is naive, but also that uh, nature has produced everything in the world, including her, including vampires. And in that sense, she's just acting as any creature would act. You know, it's just if, if we're looking at this from a natural or even a scientific viewpoint, which she seems to be, um, mm-hmm. and that's also very typical to me of this sort of, you know, mid-Victorian perspective, sort of post-Darwinian perspective, that, you know, that's just what she does. You know, she survives and, and she, uh, she's only acting according to her, to her nature. I think that's exactly right. Um, so I don't know if she sees herself as evil, really. It's in, in in that sense that the absence of the mirror. I mean, she's 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 beautiful, um, but I don't. Do we we ever find Dracula actually beautiful in any of his descriptions? No. In Dracula, I don't think he is right. No, uh, he's mesmerizing, but he's not. Yeah, thing. he's compelling. He's but, three brides uh, out though. <laughs> True. Good point. Yeah. Now. In in Dracula's guest, I thought I, I thought I was remembering it wrong, and I was remembering it wrong that the Dracula's guest is the taken out short story, but not taken out short story from Dracula um, that works very well on its own. There is a tomb of a uh, I, w- I want to say it's from Karnstein, but it's not. <laughs> it's a different one. What, do you remember? Anybody remember what the name of that one is? But it was the same. It, there was other vampires in the world. It's not like Dracula is the only one and his crew is the only group. Right. That's right? true. Um, I, I, I was watching the Mark Gaddis uh, Horror Europa series, and uh, it's a documentary about uh, European horror films. And he was talking about about Nosferatu and how it was uh, almost completely destroyed because of the copyright issue uh, it was sort of uh, a sort of adaptation of dracula without you know any of the names but the plot didn't sound that close to dracula's it sounded you know as different from dracula as this is different from dracula mm-hmm. um but the 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 theme is you know the invasion of the home right, right? it's always and, and the other theme is it's uh, this is something Eric Rabkin talks about is that vampires are for, uh, they're the, the problem of the upper class, whereas werewolves are, you know, the problem of the local people, <laughs> you know, peasant, uh, the tenant farmers. I never thought uh, about it that way, but that, that makes a lot of sense. And talking about how, you know, the invasion of the home with that drawbridge is always down Anybody was invited in, right? Mm-hmm. Except for the mountebank and the, you know, the uh, the traveling salesman. They're not allowed in. But if you're of a noble family, which uh, Carmilla's uh, mother, in both cases, insists that they are, oh, that's fine. You're welcome. Right. right. Um, even even though they don't have the same religion, they don't have any actual provenance that they can actually tell you. If they've got that, they're in, and that's fine. You can come in. This hus- this story of hospitality um, goes all the way back to uh, the Odyssey, which is a story, you know, a series of stories about how you can screw up the host guest relationship. Right. And you can go into the house when the ho- person's not home. That's wrong. You can overstay your welcome. 
you can uh, uh, keep your guests too long, right? right? There's all sorts of different stories on this. This one is basically don't let, <laughs> don't invite someone into your house just because they are uh, from a wealthy family because they let a lot of stuff slide that Carmilla says and does that I would totally not let anybody uh, <laughs> do in my house. I mean, yeah. she, she's horrible, really. I think she, the only she, thing, virtue she has is she's pretty. Well, I was going to say exactly that, that, you know, she, yes, she's from a noble family and that's kind of her ticket in. But uh, I think her beauty has a lot to do with why she's tolerated in the way that she is. I mean, her physical appearance is described quite a lot in the novel. I'm, of course, we're getting this from Laura's perspective and then, but also from the general eventually um, when he recounts uh, his story that, you know, she's, she's so beautiful. She's, you know, her voice is so sweet. You know, she's so slender. She's so, you know, lovely in all these different ways that she becomes kind of fetishized by the, by the narrative. But I think also she just seduces her way in. She's just that, you know, kind of lovely that, uh, she makes everybody accept her. Um, and, uh, it's important, I think, that she, I, at least in part, seeks only what she perceives to be as comparable beauty in the kind of the girls that she chooses, um, different, but, but comparable, but it's important for her too, that she kind of selects these kind of similarly fetishized girls. Bertha, Bertha was the, was the original companion to be. Right. Uh, who, uh, yeah. And I, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, Bertha's the, the one who is being protected by her uncle, um, who is standing at the, the very striking image in the original uh, serialization of the, of the, Uncle Spielstorf uh, <laughs> breaking into the room yeah. while uh, Bertha sleeps and Carmilla crawls onto the bed. Yeah, He's got a sword in his hand and it's like it, the way it's drawn even, it, it's very phallic. It's very. like, okay, you're <laughs> not having my, my beautiful uh, niece. Right. Um, and it, it's curious that there's these, you know, these two castles off in the woods and the two um, father figures are there with the daughters and the mothers are gone. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's like, what is that about, right? It, it's, it's totally there. It's this, the, the, there's no hiding the fact that this is all sex, 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 sex. Stuff. Yeah, and, and the, the picture, I'm looking at it, it's in my edition as well. Um, he's definitely got the phallic sword and... The daughter, who's lying asleep with her arms slung over her mm-hmm. head, has got these huge breasts that are kind of partly exposed by her nightgown as mm-hmm. uh, Carmilla creeps over. Yeah, she's reaching. Yeah, and she's reaching right. toward her. So it's not hiding any of that. I mean, it's it's blatant, I would say. <laughs> it's it, it's not. I mean, the thing is, is uh, Mr. Jim, and you, you talked about, I think, the Vampire Lovers. Did you mention that movie to me? Yes, yes, yeah. So that's the Hammer adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a couple more which I I didn't watch, but I think I probably will now. Uh, that I guess it's the Karnstein trilogy or something like that. But what's interesting about that adaptation is it's I never I didn't expect a Hammer movie to have that much nudity. It was like holy cow, that's a <laughs> lot of nudity. 
and it doesn't hide it doesn't really shy away from the the lesbianism that's going on in this too which uh i i don't know when that movie came out but whatever the censorship was happening in the uk didn't happen in that particular case well they had they had a big fight with the censors over it um <clears throat> uh, back then the uh, british board of film censors um it's now the british board of classification but uh, back then um if you're making a film in britain uh, you you weren't obliged, but you were heavily advised to, to submit the script before you started shooting. And they'd say, well, you can do that, you can't do that. If you do that, we'll just cut it. Um, and Hammer had these legendary uh, battles. We, we do have Hammer historians who love the correspondence, and they do have these uh, verbal jousting matches with the censors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with the vampire lovers, they were kind of, no, 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 you're not doing this. And uh, uh, Jimmy Sangster, I think, and uh, Michael Careers were writing back going, well, this is literature. <laughs> it's in <Yeah>. the book. <laughs> which, is, which is always a good card to play. Uh, because the, And... Um, but they also said, well, there's been contemporary films about it, blah, 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 and we handle it in a very artistic manner. We're not being lurid. <laughs> <laughs> We're not the killing of Sister George, that, <laughs> you know, uh, this kind of thing. Um, but having said that, in the, the next, the two Karnstein sequels they do, they actually do really backpedal the, uh, uh, the lesbianism considerably. <laughs> in the second one, um, Lust for a Vampire, where... Um, uh, Mikala is reincarnated yet again. Um, although she does prey on a couple of young ladies, uh, the main thrust is she's um, in love with this, uh, as she falls for this, uh, the hero of the piece, who is uh, a gothic writer called Richard Lestrange. She's kind of a knowing <laughs> nod to Lefarno. Mm-hmm. And he's from Cork as well, so in Ireland. It's interesting. One of the. I, I love looking at adaptations, and I, I listen to a couple of radio drama versions, uh, three or four radio drama versions, a couple of different comic book versions. When, when they change something, you can see why it was. like when it works and when it doesn't. And in, in the, that movie version, Vampire Lovers, one of the things they do is they, they change the chronology of the storytelling. So they move General Spieldorf's stuff to the front. So we see. Uh, Carmilla doing um, everything with Bertha first, then uh, we get um, Laura after, so that the reader knows much earlier on, you know, the backstory. But the uh, I'm not sure if that works or not. But what I did notice very interestingly is that the servants are completely absent from the the text, whereas in the movie the servants are key to the plot. So in the movie version, the governess um, turns is is seduced by uh, by Mercal, uh, Carmilla, as is the I guess the butler mm. who we know there must be a butler. There's some sort of servant, you know, cooking those foods and opening those doors and you know and carrying the picnic baskets. We know that there's some servants there, but. Well, they don't even get names, and they play no role, as far as we can tell, in the plot. Mm. And the fact the fact that that's uh, in the movie makes me think it's you know these vampire literature uh, is about not is not about servants; it's about the upper class getting you know, as Eric would say, you know, having having their interests and needs serviced. <laughs> um, whereas there is a suggestion in the novel though that. that, that 
Camilla might be up to something with the governess because you know, when, when she's caught at the end, mm-hmm. she is um, leading her into the forest back to her tomb to all intents and purposes. It's true. And uh, there, you know, there's a mention of a gardener seeing seeing uh, a ghost under mm-hmm. Carmilla's window. Yeah. They're mentioned. Mm. Most of them are not given. There's two governesses given names. Everyone else is, you know, completely sidelined. But in The Vampire Lovers... The butler is front and center in the plot. Hmm. He's he's not he's at one point protecting uh, Laura and another point um, helping you know after he's been seduced, uh, helping to suppress her. And that 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 change just highlights to me how little we see of what the the servants you know barely do anything there's a nurse you know comforting them and we have them chattering in the background but the focus is entirely on the upper upper class folks uh, a change in the in the vampire lovers is in the novel you do have these recurring references to someone else has died in the village someone That's else right. has died in the village and it's kind of camilla has this sort of two tier predatory system She's nipping out at night for a quick snack on the uh, peasants. <laughs> but, you know, she's really, her real main goal is she wants to seduce Laura. I mean, she's done, gone through this sort of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, this kind of obsessive love affair with Bertha and finished her. And she's learned of Laura through Bertha. And that's where she appears next. Well, in The Vampire Lovers, it's, that's only alluded to um, very obliquely that she's hunting the populace as well mm-hmm. which, which is interesting um, she's got to fill her coffin with seven inches of blood every night is that what's going like it's interesting is is she drinking the blood or bathing in it i think that's uh, a reference to the elizabeth bartoldi i think that's the, mm-hmm. the supposed female vampire who used to bathe in young girls blood i think that's the right. the reference there maybe but i know i i, I wondered about that too uh, I think that's also something that um, Lefonu picked up through um, studying vampire law. That um, I can't remember if it's a, a Russian variety or a Polish variety of vampire, but you know they were said to you know be found floating in coffins of blood. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> it makes a very striking image, um, it, which is downplayed quite a bit in the in the text. Uh, uh, the, the, I get the sense that Laura didn't actually see that. Um, I don't although, think she does. Does she? Yeah, but how does she know it's like seven inches? Like <laughs> the fact that yeah, I mean, I, I get a sense that she's not seeing much. The fact that she does, she didn't even see the the blue mark or the bite marks on her breast. Uh, doesn't she have a mirror in her room? <laughs> Uh, like, wouldn't you say, ouch, that hurts? Oh, oh my. Right. It's like, um, that, that would be the obvious thing. But on the other hand, going back to the very beginning of the story, she says she was entirely shielded from ghost stories and fairy tales. True. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> so she is not one prone to imagination, but, um. But she's also falling ill as well at the time. Yeah. She's falling under Camilla's spell, and um, she's becoming more languorous and dreamlike, and That's literally fade, fading away, disappearing into this netherworld where everything's everything's lovely and beautiful. Camilla's really nice, and there's a lot of people fussing about her and worried about her. But 
languorous and languid come up Mm. in this in more times than in any story I've ever read. And although that is not entirely incompatible with with other vampire stories, it's not the main one that, you know, we normally think of. I think it's meant to be sort of code word for sensual, you know, yeah, she's Mm. it's. He's not saying it, but she's essentially becoming, well, sated, you know, um, and and just a lot more sort of sensual. Um, and it's because of the effect that, that Carmilla is having on her. She's unconscious of it, but I think that's what we're meant to be, um, to get from that. I think you're right. It's It's a... Uh... It's it's a feeling we've all had, right? You're lying in bed and you say, oh, I'll just stay here a little longer. I'm feeling a little bit sick, but it's okay. I've got my cup of tea. And um, this uh, there's a, a, a very weird um, sexual interest for some people of like, it sh- looks like she's just recovered from an illness where they, you've got the, so that look of, Oh well, she almost died, but that's that. That even makes her more attractive. It's like, how did this become a fetish, right? Right. <laughs> but it 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 seems to it's like is genetically do we see that and say as a as an animal we say oh that's good that means that disease she's now resistant to that disease therefore um, she will make a good parent to my children is that what is going on in the in that logic that. <laughs> You survive. Like one of the doctors has mentioned, it being covered in the scars of a of smallpox, right? And he's got a brown uh, he's got a brown wig to hide his hair loss, right? All of this this facade uh, didn't they used to like cover up their their spots with like little hearts and stuff? And sure, <laughs> it's like what is that all about, right? It's hmm. it's it's all about beauty. And that that is especially true in here. I mean, the fact that, you know, Laura seems as interested in the beauty of Carmilla as Carmilla is in the beauty of Laura. In fact, Carmilla, the, the description of Laura is not as, you know, lovingly. Uh, she doesn't say how beautiful she is at all. Right? She doesn't say how be- beautiful she is. She describes herself, but not as being, you know, the glowing beauty. The father says, oh, you're wonderful, my dear. But, you know, he's not, he seems even more entranced with Carmilla's beauty. Yeah, I think they all and are. It, it, but is it, is it, uh, does that mountebank see her how she really is, or at least partially see how, her how she really is? Or, it, it, like, she's a corpse, Right. And yet, sometimes she's warm, and sometimes she's cold. Right. I don't know. I think the vampires are also kind of liminal figures, you know. They're, you know, living and dead, and, hmm. you know, I think that the, the... I keep coming back to that image of the caterpillar, um, mm-hmm. because there's this kind of idea of metamorphosis that goes along with it. Um, and it, I was thinking that, you know, the girl, if a girl is a caterpillar, and then she's supposed to eventually change into a butterfly... Um, in some ways, that's a, of course a false image when it comes to what Carmilla is doing to Laura, which is not 
turning her into a butterfly, but, you know, turning well, her into a corpse, right? Your chrysalis is your grave. Right, uh, right. Your coffin or something. Yeah. Well, I think with Camilla, you've got to remember this is a pre-Dracula vampire story, and it was Stoker who kind of pretty much set the template for how we think in fiction of vampires, and he established, you know, the rules nearly all of the vampires abide by. Whereas, you know, Camilla is kind of, she's a bit more of a folklore vampire, which if you deal with the original vampire myths, there is this kind of uh, ghostly quality to them, rather than being like the walking predatory dead. They are kind of, you know, these sort of uh, phantasmal spirits who come to you at night in dreams. Right. And, you know, they're kind That's of, right. uh, they're, um, they're a lot less corporeal than the your, your post-Stoker vampire or, you know, your Varney the Vampires, which are kind of, you know, horrors that walk from the grave. Whereas, you know, she is kind of something that's dead, but, but not alive, but not exactly a walk, and she's not exactly crawling out of the coffin either, but there's kind of a talismanic link between a tomb uh, uh, and, you know, herself. It is in common. She talks of kind of, you know, how they leave their graves without disturbing the dirt. We don't know. Um, it's just, you know, the idea that they are kind of, these kind of ghostly creatures. Uh, Revenants is, is what haunted the, uh, is the, the, the ruin of the village of Karnstein, right? Reven- Revenant is what? A ghost person, sort of? Uh, well, no, a, a Revenant, see, this is an interesting point of folklore, because um, Revenants are often pointed out to being kind of um, sort of Northern European uh, equivalents of vampires, uh, there's also the Durigar in uh, Scandinavian mythology. And uh, revenants were distinct from ghosts. In fact, they, they were dead bodies who would get up and walking and bothering people. Mm-hmm. Um, the revenants aren't normally uh, portrayed as like uh, feasting on blood, but they, are, they do come back and make a nuisance of themselves. And uh, interesting, actually, your, your folkloric vampires, they were, they were just as likely to be up around roaming the village and banging on your windows and uh, and riding your horses to exhaustion as they were to drink your blood in a, in a lot of um, Eastern European folklore. Kind of, you know, blood drinking was just part of their mischief. So at, the, at home, after, after the... Um, they're sort of basically... After Spielstorff shows up, one of the things that happens is this guy comes in, uh, uh, Baron von... Baron Vordenberg, and he's got the story as to, you know, oh, where Laura, not Laura, where Carmilla came from. And he says, you know, one of my ancestors, you know, another, everyone's related to the Karnsteins. Uh, by the way, I have to point it out, even though everybody probably knows, I, I love pointing it out to my students. Karnstein is flesh stone. <laughs> it's just like, uh, it's all, it's all awesome. But, um, this guy, he's got a story, and he says, my ancestor, you know, went over there, and he fell in love with a vampire, and there was a suicide, and and then he dug her up or something like that, moved the coffin, and gets all confused, confusing backstory to explain all the things that, you know, where did this actually come from? It, it takes it out of that folklore and starts turning it into the proto-science fictional explanation for where vampires come from you know you have to be a suicide but then once you're a vampire you can kill other people that's what carmilla wants to do i think to to laura right she wants to turn her into a vampire yes 
I think that's the idea for this long seduction rather than these quick the, kills, which she clearly is doing when she leaves at night. Of, uh, with Laura, she's got kind of, she wants to draw her into her world and make her like, like herself. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, of the, one of the great questions in, in Carmilla, uh, one that the Hammer trilogy tr- sort of tries to answer, but it's kind of, who is her mother and this mysterious totally. man in black? And, you know, she clearly, at the end, it, it appears, oh, she we found the vampires too mistake to end of story but she clearly has this whole entourage who assists her in this um who sets up what i think of as the cuckoo nest scenario but yeah I and mean, that's the great thing that is never explained and a lot of people i mean i've looked online there's lots of people always asking about them going who were those people who are these accomplices are, are they um other vampires um well, are, are they, are they the illusions? very gaunt right yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, but they're very efficient at getting that broken uh that quote unquote broken carriage back on the road and off into the woods again, right? Well, it, it, it's, it's a scam. scam. <laughs> it is a scam. It's a, it's a little charade. They've apparently done a lot. Many times is the inference <laughs> that they go place to place and they set up a yeah. coach crash. And I'm sorry, we've got to abandon our daughter with you. Bye. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, she, she, she's, you know, like the cuckoo in the nest. That's exactly, that's the, exactly the thing I was thinking of is it is a cuckoo in the nest. Um, because it, it's, it's, well, she looks like your daughter. She's similar to your daughter. She's a nice playmate for your daughter, but you don't know her provenance. You don't know where she's from. You're not allowed to know those things, but she looks right. And she, she makes all the right noises, except wait a second. She doesn't make all the right noises. <laughs> she's not even of our religion. Uh, but that's okay. She's pretty. <laughs> and then of course the cuckoo kills the cuckoos kill the other eggs, right? Well, that's it, yes. They push the other chicks out the nest and leave them to die. <laughs> that's right. And then they suck the parent dry. Um, it's, 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 it's a wonderful, horrible story and a wonderful, horrible illusion. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, I, I was telling um, Elizabeth uh, that I had a, 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 a feeling after reading this story, I said, Laura, is that, is, is, is what happened to Laura Palmer? What happened? I mean, it almost could be right. <laughs> Laura Palmer's death in twin peaks <laughs> is mysterious in the way that, uh, we don't know how this beautiful young woman that everybody loved. Uh, it's kind of similar. What do we, what do you think about the connection? Am I reaching too far? <laughs> it, it is a bit of a, a bit of a reach. I think, I mean, yeah. I think so that, there seems to be, I think, offhand, though, there's a lot of Laura's who, meet, who end up being victims in fiction. It's true. <laughs> Maybe it's a numerological thing. But there, I thought there's a parallel that, you know, she, she, Laura Palmer, was prey to this outside influence who, who, who intruded into the home and, and seduced her into another, another, another life that destroyed her. So but it's, it's a, also her father, ultimately, mm, right? This yeah. is, this is the, the hidden thing that, that you know, yeah, it's not just about lesbianism. It's also about incest, right? All of the, everybody in these families are all related. Spielstorf, I don't know if he's related, but but uh, the the Baron who comes, he's related. Laura is related to Carmilla, right, through the mother's family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this lonely guy off in the in the woods by himself uh, with his mu- with his wife dead and a beautiful daughter. Um, and then there's the Spielstorf with his niece, 
who he thinks of as a quote-unquote daughter, um, running into the room to catch the lesbian vampire who's going to, you know, steal uh, uh, Bertha away from him, right? It, it ultimately, um, it, that, that's what a, a lot of gothic themes are about, right? Oh, well, it is. It's kind of a perverting of the norms and the, the, the corruption beneath the innocent mask. Uh, or beneath the veneer of respectability, you know, pulled back to reveal um, sin and tragedy and doom. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think the kind of the, the, the motherless thing. I mean, it, that might be just more a reflection on the time. You remember, even when you know Lafonu was writing, and uh, it's kind of still a lot of women did die in childbirth. <laughs> That's true. Uh, so, so whether it was a, a symbolic thing or whether it is just um, a reflections of the, the mortality rates at the time, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Certainly, it is, or maybe it's just you know, Camilla's modus operandi that uh, she can she can fool a father, but she knows if there's a mother on the scene, <laughs> she, she won't be able to get away with her game, yeah. and her beauty won't cut it. Yeah, that's right, and and. Uh, they would. She would. She would. She wouldn't say, "Yeah, we're going to take in this girl." Right? She would say, "Uh-uh, we're not having that girl in our house." You know, we don't know where she's from. We don't know what her motivations are. She would be more protective of her husband, and I, I guess ultimately, she she would have to be worried about her daughter as well. But well, I think there's that thing of that. Um, if there's a mother on the scene, I think you know naturally it's kind of. Um not to, not to sound uh, sexist or crass, but uh, a mother would deal with um, specific female problems, and therefore a mother would probably quick on a lot quicker. There's something very fishy going on. Whereas these middle-aged men with a young daughter, they go, "No, no, I don't want to know anything, anything about what's going on. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so the doctor, the doctor can take care of that. Minutes, right? You know, yeah. it's kind of. I mean, this is what you know, this was an age where you know. Uh, women were still being diagnosed with melancholia and hysteria mm-hmm. and all these kind of strange things where middle-aged men just, just didn't understand women at all. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd, be inter- I'd, be, I'd, I'd be interested to read some uh, more, more Lafanu uh, to oh, compare, totally. but I, I do think maybe it's kind of, kind of the, the, the father and the daughter is maybe a common gothic trope or a mother and a son or, uh, you know, a partial orphan is, is part of the gothic tragedy that instantly mm-hmm. set, sets up uh, the doom to come of the, you know, the, this is already a blighted family and they're just going to get a push to take them into the abyss. <laughs> I I was also reminded, uh, not for any particular, you know, plot point or anything, but just in the tone and feeling of Morella, you know, that, Post story, yes, yes. Um, where I mean, it's it, she's not a vampire exactly, but what she is is not because she she doesn't really. If if you were to try and find a vampire story written by Poe, that would be the closest you could get. I I would guess either that. Well, there's Lygia and there's uh, Berenice. Lygia, okay, Berenice, yes. Well, but even so, Morella is, it's got that, it's got that, you know, she dominates the main character, uh, the, the guy's telling the story. He marries her not because uh, she was beautiful, 
but because he was entranced by her, right? And her knowledge, she's much wiser than he, right? And that, that compelled him to marry her, even though he found her in a sense repulsive. Um, and she promises, uh, I will come back to you. And their child, he eventually, you know, uh, he names her Morella, which is creepy <laughs> in itself. And the child suddenly recognize, you know, it seems to just suddenly know things that, about their previous life together. And it's like, this is, it's a kind of immortality in an undying mm. that, uh, is, it's all up in the creepy. <laughs> it's all up in the creepy <laughs> without it being actually, um, uh, you know, I don't think there's a, uh, I'm going to kill you in this process exactly, but it's, I'm going to have you. I'm going to, you that's, can never escape me. That's it, that, that all possessing consumption. Yeah. Uh, to it. Uh, I think it's the, the same thing in Carmilla that, you know, she, you know, she, she not only will completely have Laura, um, Laura will actually, for the mo- most part, will, will quite willingly go along with that quite happily because she's so, mm-hmm. so, yeah, she so seems very, she seems very cool with it. Most of the, uh, she, you know, she'll say when Carmilla says something really outrageous, she'll say, well, that struck me as a little odd, <laughs> but she is very beautiful and I love playing with her hair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also that thing that's kind of that I found quite eerie early on of where Laura's a child and is visited by Camilla mm. and it is kind of that really gives you I mean it does two things you want to give you a real sense of uh, how old Camilla is and how long she's been putting this play into motion and she's just been waiting for the fruit to be ripe to be picked yeah uh, do you think she she did actually creep into that room, right? It wasn't like just a dream. There's because of the the way the servants talked, etc. She had. She, it's because she's you know that's her stomping grounds, right? And because she she visits in like three months, she she takes at least three months to cultivate a a uh, one of these undying you know these beauties in these remote castles in the woods. Um, we get the sense that this could have gone on and on and on, and maybe is will continue to go on, even though they chopped her head off, burned her body, and threw the ashes <laughs> into the river. Well, it's a uh, you know there is that kind of um, it, it's in um it's a Roger Vadim uh adaptation, it's the famous adaptation of Camilla called uh, Blood and Roses. Oh. Um, and that moves the story to uh, contemporary Italy and changes it quite a bit. Um, but it has a lot of the same sort of themes and the same kind of ideas of obsession. In that one, the, um, the Camilla uh, character is she, she's equally attracted to um, this young heiress, but she's also equally attracted to the, uh, the, the Count Kainstein uh, who she's going to marry. Uh, and in that, yeah, I mean, they have a, 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 a servant character in the gardener who kind of, um, he delivers a lot of the vampire lore in the movie. And one thing he tells, um, 
because the Laura character has two younger younger daughters. Um, there's two other younger girls in there. I think they're nieces or, or I can't remember, nieces or sisters in the house, and the guy, they're always asking the gardener for spooky stories. And the gardener reports mm-hmm. seeing a white ghost, but he tells them about a vampire, and he says, you know. Um, Oh, a vampire is this, a vampire that. If a vampire picks up a live flower, it begins to die. Mm-hmm. And um, at the close, close of Blood and Roses, um, Camilla is um, are being dispatched. The curse is being broken, and uh, she, she was kind of drawing the Laura character and feeding on, and she was getting ill and pale and wasting away. And so he's near when Camilla dead. You know, it's all fine. She marries Count Karstein, and it's all, it's all beautiful, and they fly mm-hmm. off on their honeymoon. And the last shot is them in the plane, and she's holding a red rose. And as it fades out, you can see the petals of the rose dropping off. Mm. And you nice. know, so you kind of wonder, kind of how far along the process is 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 Laura? Yeah, is she there? <laughs> yeah, is she? Because it says, it, it, well, the thing is, is at the end it says, uh, or oh, somewhere in the text it says she's written this eight years after, right? After the events, um, and then in the prologue, it says that she's dead. So the 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 writer of the prologue, presumably Sheridan Le Fanu, can't communicate with her. But if she is it like a um, venereal disease that once you you know you've got the infection, it will take some time to fully bloom, and <laughs> that her her dying is, you know, is she a vampire now, or is she just did she just die from from uh, Carmilla finding her again, even though she's had her head chopped off, been burned <laughs> in a fire, thrown in the river, or is she just, you know, a device just to put that little kind of what Mr. James you know recommended in Ghost Stories, that little lens of distance mm. uh, between the events of this, this unbelievable story and the contemporary world, just to. Just to aid the suspension of disbelief of this happened in olden times, mm-hmm. um, or, or is it like a plot thread that uh, Lafarne, you know, left, you know, left flapping deliberately, or maybe just overlooked and meant to come back to it at the end? Because <laughs> this was published as a serial, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, having read other works that were written as serials, sometimes you do find the authors introduce plot ideas and sort of. A story threads early on that very, you, that get I find it very unified. It seems to it's incredibly well written. I I think um, it, almost everything that is planted pays off, and the number of the the number of times where I can going back and reading it again, I I can see, um, you know, this is for atmosphere, and this is for uh, setting up something later to come, uh, and. You know, everybody who who writes a letter in the first chapter comes and explains more fully in the last chapter. Um, one of the things that's in here also that I thought was interesting is there's a list of books consulted, right? Um, uh, it says, um, here, here it is. He had taken up his abode in Graz, where living upon a mere pittance, this is the Baron von Bordenberg, which was all which was all that remained of his once princely estates of his family in Upper Styria. He devoted himself to the minute and laborious investigation of the marvelously marvelously authenticated tradition of vampirism. He had at his fingers as his fingers ends all the great little works upon the subject, as as do we now with 
the internet on their phones. <laughs> Magia Postuma, Phlegon de Mirabilis, Augustinus de Cura Pro Mortuis. These are all books, right? Books about mm-hmm. vampirism. Philosophicae et Christiane Cogniciones de Vampiris by Christopher Herrenberg and thousands of others, among which I remember only a few of which he lent my father. <laughs> he, had a volumin- he had voluminous digests of all the judicial cases from which he had extracted a system of principles that appeared to govern some way, some always and others only occasionally, the condition of the vampire. And that's it. That's, this is saying, okay, vampires have certain rules. This is where the rules begin. I don't think Varney has any of these rules, right? It's just whatever would work in that particular serial for that particular week, for that <laughs> well, particular, yes, yes. you know, 600-episode mm. run of what it was essentially a soap opera for teenagers or whatever. Um, this is this has got a set of rules that it follows, it, it, the only one of which that I think is never picked up again is that uh, uh, anagrammatical name convention but oh no that that has come back that comes back uh, yeah yes it's in uh son of dracula uh is that a movie yeah yes um when um universal had uh made dracula um they belatedly did a sequel dracula's daughter and then later on they did son of dracula um with uh lon cheney jr as the count um Although it's kind of the son of Dracula, kind of in Dracula's daughter, it is actually Dracula's daughter. In son of Dracula, it's heavily implied this is the Count returned under a different name. Mm. And he, he appears as Count Olucard, which is Dracula backwards. Huh. And that's been picked up and, you know, used several times in the, the, uh, one of the later Hammer Dracula's uh, Dracula AD 1972. There's a disciple of Dracula called Johnny Olucard. Mm. Um, so that that does that's that's come back over the years. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the only other name uh, that to me, other uh, Spielstorf, he's got a, tor- a story to uh, a story to tell. He's got a spiel to tell. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, there was uh, somebody named Renfield, not Renfield, um, something very close to Renfield. Um, in this story, and that I thought was maybe a pickup from uh, pickup for Stoker. Uh, quite possibly. I mean, you know, kind of um, the, the very uh, first draft of Dracula. Um, it was you know, the other the early version of, of it of his, from his notes. It was going to be set in Styria, like this story, hmm. before he he settled on Transylvania and uh, started digging on his own research and. Uh, and um, you know, found there was that much kind of Romanian uh, vampire law, which he, he would you know draw on himself rather than just drawing on second hand from the Farnu. Interestingly, the, the in this story, the English live there. Um, you know, they've in, inveigled themselves into a castle in in uh, Styria. Whereas, <laughs> interesting, they say they they can live cheaper there. <laughs> Well, that's true. But why is Dracula like the English have moved to this this father? Uh, I don't think we ever learn the family name, do we? Of 
Uh, uh, no, we don't. I don't board, border or something, I think is what it's used in the movie or... In any case, um, he was in the he was in the uh, Austrian service. I assume that means uh, either government or military. I, I don't know what that would be. Um, he's retired after marrying a Styrian lady. Uh, they bought this castle. They're living in the woods. Uh, Spielsdorf is their friend from down the road, but they have planted themselves in a foreign country and they speak speak their own language. They're practicing it, even though our main character, Laura, has never been to England. She doesn't know any English <laughs> people other than her father. Um, this is this is a reversal of what Dracula's intention is. is I'm going to get out of Transylvania. I'm going to go into England. Right? Well, this is it. Carmilla is you're, you're living in the lands of, uh, of folklore and where the monsters are, where Dracula is the monsters coming to the modern world and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, breaking into your own house that's right the the surroundings in that gothic castle they've got are they are limited to 300 year old furniture and such but amongst the visitors are people who are uh familiar with the folklore but also the modern scientists like spielsdorf when he talks to the the father says Stuff like, you're not going to believe what I have to tell you. And he says, well, you know, I, I, I'm a reasonable guy, and I I believe things that are, you know, reasonably stated, etc. Um, try me. And then he hears the story, and he's like, what? Oh, wait a second, we do have a picture of Carmilla. You have a picture of her? I've seen her in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, she's only seen that portrait earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it was a way for cleaning. <laughs> I love this story. Uh, I would like to just uh, talk maybe briefly just about about the writing itself. I mean, um, uh, it has none of the usual choppiness you find with a story written as a serial. It just does tick along beautifully as a novel. Mm. It doesn't really doesn't betray its origins as a serial as a part work. Um, but what really really um, struck me about it is kind of because um, I've read a lot of um, uh, Vic Fick shall we say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, this is, uh, I mean, I, I, when I was re- rereading it, I was just really, this time, I was just marvelling at the beautiful uh, clarity and economy of Lefanu's prose. Absolutely. It's, um, it's, it's lovely to read. I mean, it's, it, it's like a fine wine. And I don't even like wine. And it's, this is like, this is vintage, beautiful storytelling. And it, 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 the other thing is, is it's wonderful to read aloud. Well, this is it. It has um, it has none of the kind of usual uh, labyrinthine sentences you get in, with authors of the same vintage, and indeed of later vintage. You don't have these, you know, hideous sentences that are three paragraphs in themselves, <laughs> full of clauses and subclauses. This is it's all very simply. It's all so remarkably clear, but so evocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, kind of, I know a lot of people are put off by old literature. Um, they often be made to read boring books in school, and uh, often have trouble with the kind of torturous sentence structures and obtuse verbiage. You know, you, you get in nineteenth century, even earlier twentieth century authors. Whereas at Lefanu, I mean, you could hand this to a teenager and they wouldn't have a problem with it. I think it, you're right. I think it, it, it's, it reads so fresh, it could have been written yesterday. 
it really doesn't. I don't it think doesn't it betray its age. It's as good as uh, I mean, this is way better than <laughs> the stuff that would have been written yesterday. Well, this is it true. Written. Uh, what, what's what's so striking to me is that it isn't way better known. I know that you know there's been many adaptations. Um, there's been many publications of the book itself, but uh, when you think about vampires, it's basically just Dracula, and then there's the TV shows, right? Uh, people don't know any other books. Um, but this is uh, this is such a I guess it's the length because it's not a novel it's a novella it 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 gets short shrift there but uh, I just I can imagine myself reading this many times many times again uh, absolutely I mean I read it when I was kind of quite young and I must I'll have to be honest I when I first read it um, I didn't appreciate it uh, as much um, as I was expecting to because. I felt it was kind of, it was a bit subtle for my, for, for a very young lad who's wanting fangs and blood and, you know, I mean, you can, when at the age when I read, I think it was about 12 or something, I mean, I'd read Dracula and that knocked my socks off because that really does deliver. Uh, Camilla, I appreciated, but I felt it was kind of, it was a bit, um, a bit genteel, shall we say. Mm. But, you know, when, when I've gone back to it now, you know, in, in subsequent years, it's kind of it's always it's just such a joy to read, and you know, the the subtlety in it, and the sort of the creeping atmosphere of evil, where he's kind of he doesn't overegg the pudding. You can, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you really know that Camilla is is a rogan, and you know, and no one else can see it. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just so wonderfully, wonderfully done. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.